There's never been a time like this. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. All right. I am Ben Burgess. I'm joined by our producer, Forrest Miller. This is Give Them an Argument. Uh, in um, not very many minutes, uh, we are going to be talking uh, to Thaddeus Russell, uh, who's, among other things, the author of The Renegade History of the United States. And later in the episode, uh, going to be uh, chatting with the great Anna Kasparian. Uh, no, uh, no David Griscom this, uh, this week. Uh, he's traveling. Uh, but uh, our, our friend uh, Vic Viana uh, stepping in for an alternative music uh, segment um, to, uh, to substitute for the one that, uh, that we usually do. Uh, so, uh, so that should be fun. Uh, and also uh, later on, I'm uh, going to uh, play part of the uh, interview that's coming out for patrons on Thursday with uh, Dasha from Red Scare. But um, the voice you just heard, of course, uh, was uh, President Trump. Um, <laughs> I guess uh, it don't think that counts as condemning uh, what happened on uh, on Wednesday. Oh, somewhere between inciting and condemning, I think. Yeah, no, walking that's right. Line. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, walking uh, walking a tightrope between inciting and condemning. I think that's uh, I think that's exactly right. Uh, that you know he's he's saying you know he's saying that they should go home. But he's also letting them know that uh, they're very special and he loves them, uh, which is uh, which is a hell of a way to talk to uh, uh, people uh, rioting in the uh, in the Capitol. Uh, I don't know how uh, I don't know how Don Jr. felt about that. I think that's more uh, more affection than he's ever gotten from his dad. Yeah, that's right. That's that. Yeah, Don Jr. Yeah, like like Ivanka has gotten that you know from from Donald, but uh, Don Jr. and Eric definitely not. Uh, yeah. no question. Um, so yeah, like, and, and, you know, he's talking there, of course, to, uh, people who were, uh, rioting in the Capitol, uh, to, uh, as, as part of a, you know, disorganized and, and I think, I think we have to say fairly half-assed, but a, uh, but, but also a violent, you know, attempt to, uh, intimidate Congress into not, uh, certifying the results yeah. of, uh, of the election. And, yeah, I think we're going to be talking to Anna about this uh, later in the episode about how to kind of walk the line between acknowledging that this is um, extremely disturbing, right? That this should not be minimized. It's 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 an insane thing that this happened. Um, like there are there are precedents for it, but it's also it's also a crazy escalation past those precedents. Like. 
nobody died during the Brooks Brothers riots uh, riot in uh, in two thousand. You know, with uh, with Bush v. Gore. Um, so it, it it is an you know it's an insane thing that that happened, and and it's certainly like a huge indictment, you know, of um, you know Trump, obviously that you know that he was at the very least i think we could say talking out of both sides of his mouth uh, yeah. about this uh but it's also something that i think um at the same time that you don't want to minimize it that you want to recognize that it is this huge crazy escalation of what's happened before i think we also want to be careful about airing in the other direction especially because the idea that you know, however many people, I know there were tens of thousands of people at the original rally. I think the estimates I've seen for how many people were in the Capitol, I don't know what you'd see for us, but I've seen estimates ranging from like several hundred to a couple thousand. Yeah, that's about what I've seen. I think 2,000 was probably the max that I saw. I mean, it's hard to really gauge that, I guess, because it's not like someone was going around tallying <laughs> yeah. up everybody they saw, but. Right. Yeah, but that, that sounds about right. Uh, and so. And not all, and not all two thousand by any means made it into any of the the federal buildings. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's definitely a lot of people that showed up for showed up at the Capitol that didn't necessarily push their way in, didn't break windows, didn't. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, uh, so, I, I guess this is the this is the thing about that that we we are talking, and you know there are, uh, you know the retired police and military who are in the mob. There are some people who who were still those things, you know, who, uh, who are in the mob, you know, they're obviously their off hours. Uh, but we are talking about a fairly small, by the standards of these things, fairly small, uh, mostly civilian mob of fantasists. I think you can say that. Like people, yeah. who are like, you know, QAnon, you know, lunatics, you know, who to spend like their version of way too much time online, and who who decide who thought that they could do this thing that they clearly had no power to do, uh, and you know managed to um, you know get a few of themselves killed, and uh, and I think two cops killed. Like I know there was one initially, but yeah. I think was died well, since then. I think, I, I think one cop was killed by the mob or involved, like by something involved in the mob. The other cop committed suicide, from what I heard. Oh, okay. All right. So they they managed to kill one cop and and um, and a few of themselves in various ways. Uh, one of them, you know, one of them with a um, you know with a taser uh, that uh, that he clearly you know had not gotten the uh, the taser safety uh, yeah. instructions down. But you know, also there, there was a there was a woman who was shot by the cops. Uh, and you know, I, I do tend to think that like i think both things are true that it was like the whole thing was a crazy underreaction by by the capital cops that given the level of force that they're routinely willing to show for like code pig protesters and yeah. you know, disabled people you know no, doing any, any, medicaid any, leftist, any leftist protesters any black lives matter protesters would not have gotten that uh that nice yeah. that nice treatment from the no. restraint no. from the capital police yeah, no, for sure. So I think you could say overall it was a severe underreaction, although probably in the moment with the woman who was shot, that's an overreaction. She wasn't armed. I'm sure they could have, you know, stopped her without doing that. But I think having let this mob uh into the Capitol, uh, and then they started to freak out that they could actually get into the room where, you know, the congressmen, you know, senators were, uh, and uh, and and could start killing people. So I think they probably overreacted. Uh, in the uh, in the moment, but whatever. The point is that this sort of several hundred 
somewhere between several hundred and a couple thousand, uh, you know, deranged, you know, uh, QAnon fantasists, you know, basically doing like, um, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, like civil war reenactors, uh, but with live ammunition, you know, like it's that level of detachment from reality. Um, like our, like it's, it's bad. It's, it's a huge moral indictment of, um, of Trump and all of these right-wing, you know, demagogues who've, who've whipped them up, but it's not actually a threat to the basic institutions of, you know, what we politely call American democracy. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. Yeah. And there, there, I, I don't think there was ever, I think there was a chance that could have killed more people for sure, but I don't think there was mm-hmm. ever a chance that they could have done anything that would have led to, um, to like a, an actual like coup against, you know, the, United States government or anything like that. And the reason I think it's it's important to make that distinction is not just that there's a lot of um, like it's it's not just a matter of the sort of we debates that people have online about exactly which word you use to describe you know, as a riot or an insurrection or whatever. I think the more important thing is that what you think this like without minimizing how bad it was, what you think the scale of the threat was is going to say something about what you think about everything that's coming down the pipeline in response. Uh, So Biden has already said that a uh, major priority for him is going to be some new uh, law against domestic terrorism because God knows the terrorism laws that we have in place right now aren't, you know, repressive uh, and scary enough. Uh, And there's been a lot of, um, and, and there's been a lot of, uh, tech censorship uh, in in ways that um, you know it, it's not it's not that some of these people you know like whatever you know clearly couldn't you know couldn't have happened to nicer people right some of the people it happens to are like the worst people in the world but uh, but there is I think legitimate grounds for worrying about um, precedents that are being set about the kind of assertion of power by the tech companies. And I think that when we do get those new domestic terrorism laws, then I think that could escalate all that uh, to another level. And on that point, uh, I pre-recorded um, uh, last week a interview with uh, with Brian Atinsky, uh, who has what I think is is you know just like a useful little cautionary tale from uh, Israeli politics about this exact thing. All right, I'm now joined uh, by uh, Brian Atinsky. Uh, who uh, I asked to uh, to do this uh, because because uh, he said uh, something interesting uh, the other day on social media that I thought was very relevant here. So uh, so so Brian, do you want to just uh, quickly say who you are? Yes, hi, I'm Brian Atinsky. Um, for uh, I'm I could say I'm I'm a dual citizen. I'm a um, anti-Zionist uh, uh, citizen of Israel and, and an American. And um, um, for uh, uh, many years, I was an activist and uh, a journalist in uh, uh, Palestine, Israel. And uh, in uh, um, uh, so I, I had seen your post regarding like how we need to take what happened at the Capitol very seriously. And uh, but we also have to be very careful about how we contextualize and frame uh what happened, who these people are, and what needs to be done in the future. Um, because if we're too, like, uh, based on our emotionality and, uh, like, knee-jerk reaction, 
um, we can call for things and and frame it in a way that can lead to a backlash against the left and you know my you know uh, immigrants minorities yeah 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 so, so, so the, uh, the example that you gave um was about uh the uh the assassination of yitzhak rubin for anybody who's who's watching it uh who who might not be you know, really know about this. This is a while ago at this point. Uh, so um, there, there was, um, you know, still supposedly sort of is uh, this uh, this peace process that's uh, that's that's theoretically supposed to lead to uh, uh, to to some sort of uh, some sort of two state resolution to uh, the Israeli you know Palestinian conflict. Uh, but you know, there, there was one that people like actually took seriously in the nineties. Uh, and, and thought might really lead to something. Uh, and the, uh, the uh, Israeli prime minister who, uh, who, you know, was, uh, who was most associated with that, uh, that push, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, uh, was, uh, was assassinated uh, by, a, uh, by a right-wing terrorist, uh, you know, for, uh, for being involved in that, for, you know, in, in the mind of, of this terrorist, uh, uh, you know, being willing to uh, to give up uh, Israeli land uh, to uh, to create some sort of future Palestinian state, and what you said was about kind of the fallout from what happened as a result of that. Yes, yeah. In uh, I think May of '95, uh, they passed the uh, Oslo Accords II, which then set up the Palestinian Authority and the ABC zones, and it would be a five-year interim agreement that would be tiered. And depending, and then every certain amount of time, there would be an expansion of uh, Palestinian right, you know, our sovereignty, or quote unquote, uh, and then uh, it would lead to a final status negotiation was supposed to be in 1999. Uh, there was a lot of backlash, yeah, from the Jewish, or the, sorry, the Israeli right. And um, there was um, an increase in um, uh, violent uh, actions uh, by the uh, um, Palestinians uh, who um, were under, are still under occupation and were under occupation at the time. And actually, uh, during the time of Rabin, he increased uh, um, settlement. Uh, uh, there was a settlement increase larger than any time in Israel's history. So at the same time, he was agreeing to these negotiations. He was increasing settlement so he could create facts on the ground. Anyways, the point is, is that there was a lot of backlash from uh, the uh, right wing. And there was a lot of demonstrations. And in these demonstrations, people, uh, some of these right wing demonstrators had posters uh, so it showing. I showed you a couple that were like um, showing um uh, Rabin wearing a kafiyah, uh, Arab uh, headdress, I guess you call it, and uh, and saying he's a boged, uh, um, a traitor, or a you know. But then at the bottom it says a call for elections. I mean, so like that's it's calling for elections. It's not uh, incitement um, and or showing him as a Nazi. Now we could say like you know that's not really you know appropriate, quote unquote. But incitement, no, definitely not. But um, after the um, Igal Amir uh, assassinated um, Rabin, there was a uh, movement by liberal Israelis, mostly liberal politicians and, uh, and the citizenry, uh, who saw all these like, uh, you know, uh, posters, demonstrations and stuff, and, and said that those 
posters themselves were a form of incitement that led to uh, his assassination, ignoring the fact that there were direct calls for, for of incitement. Igal Amir went to different rabbis and literally asked them for a halachic or a um, Jewish uh, uh, legal uh, approval to uh, assassinate him uh, on the grounds that he was uh, an enemy of the Jewish people uh, for giving up Jewish land and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so, so on the one, that's the thing. They focused more, I say they smoke, there's smoke and fire. They focused on the smoke, which was the posters and kind of ignored the fire of direct calls for incitement among secular uh, nationalists and religious nationalists. Um, so in the you know in the couple of years following that there was uh, this call and then it was a push and then there was a uh, an expansion of the definition of incitement now come a few years later i was uh, the one of the co-founding members of the independent media center of israel indy media israel uh, which is an open publishing system for activists it was uh, set up by a group of israeli activists including me and uh it, it actually we opened that we started the website to, for the Prague World Trade Organization. I mean the World Bank IMF protests, which I was at, uh, which started on the 27th of September in uh, 2000. And then by uh, 2000, uh, by the next day, Ariel Sharon went to the Temple Mount and started the uh, Intifada, uh, second Intifada by pissing everyone, all the Palestinians off. Um, so. Uh, we went from like about, you know, a couple hundred hits a day to tens of thousands of uh, people trying to see what was going on because we were the only uh, organization that had people on the ground everywhere and they were uploading videos and interviews and texts and photos about what was happening at the beginning of the Intifada. We had Al Jazeera and CNN calling to us to ask for like, you know, video footage and stuff. So, so it was, it got, the Israeli government very freaked out. And so there were a lot of settlers, a lot of right wing that were watching our website for anything. And uh, we knew that. And um, anyway, so come this guy, there's a, a political cartoonist, uh, still does a lot of work uh, named Carlos Latouf. And he uh, published uh, over a few weeks. Uh, he had published other things too, but over these few weeks, he published uh, a, uh, a, a cartoon of uh, Ariel Sharon, the prime minister at the time, um, uh, kissing uh, Adolf Hitler. Now, is that in good taste? I don't know. We can ask. Is that incitement? No, definitely. It's saying uh, Hitler was violent. Ariel Sharon is violent. Violence is bad. <laughs> I mean, he should go to the Hague. I mean, yeah. that, go, calling for someone to go to the Hague is not incitement. Anyway, so um, I I, um, I didn't even see this. Literally, it was on the front page of the website because we had like a, when people publish and then there's 10 room for 10 articles, then it goes off and it goes into the archive. I mean, and if you looked at it, I checked it out. It was like five minutes. It was on the front page and then it was in the archive. But there's people watching it. They saw it. I didn't even see it. Um, all of a sudden, I, I got a call the next day from a friend who said in the front page of Idiot Achonot, which is the largest Israeli newspaper, that the uh, Indie, Indie Media Israel was under investigation uh, for incitement due to this cartoon, which they, and Jerusalem Post published a photo, I mean, of the cartoon. 
are they inciting? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> they literally showed it and said, like, this is incitement, and they did that, but okay, here it is. So what is it? Is are you insane? So it, it's ridiculous. And they knew it was, but but they under the new definition, I was uh so anyway, so I said, Oh, okay. I mean, because I, I, if you understand the context, this had happened like 20 times when the police had, you know, called us in. I mean, there were some cases where someone doxed some uh, general and we immediately removed it. I mean, you know, they knew that like it, after the fact. And um, let me throw my phone. <laughs> it's being called. Um, so uh, the. Uh, um, End result was that uh, the next day I was I was uh, laying I was sleeping it was five in the morning I'm laying in bed and all of a sudden I hear get up Brian and I'm like and I look above and there are three burly men standing above me not wearing uniforms they were wearing uh, Israeli police uniforms I mean I'd be freaked out but I right. but I mean three months before that uh, there was bomb yeah, threats you'd be, you'd be freaked out but you but but you would be freaked out in a different way like you know like people people like burly guys you don't know you know telling you to get up and wearing civilian clothes I mean you think like you're about to be I killed. thought I was about to be killed I literally I mean a little uh, three months before that I there was bomb threats against me I had to change my phone number I had to, so I thought this was them coming to kill me. So, anyways, it doesn't matter. I, I went. I was under eight hours of interrogation. Um, Israel has a lovely rule that you're not allowed lawyer while you're being interrogated. They also say, uh, while well, they were giving me my quote unquote Miranda rights, they do say like you have the right to remain. I mean, in Hebrew, but you have the right to remain silent. Anything you can say will be held against you. But they also added, uh, and if you don't speak, that will also be held against you. That's that's part of it. <laughs> Added, <laughs> um, and then uh, and then you're not there. And then they didn't bring up the part about the lawyer present. I'm like, uh, what about a lawyer present? And they're like, no, this is in America. You don't get to because I, I guess under British law, which you know British mandate, and then yeah, right. don't allow that. So it's kind of British law. Another, Anyways, another one of the lovely. Uh, consequences of British colonialism that uh, 100 years later, yeah. you know, we're still <laughs> still suffering yeah. from. But, uh, I, I remember, by the way, I don't remember who said this, but uh, that uh, the greatest uh, contribution uh, made uh, to uh, the spread of freedom in the world by America might not be the Bill of Rights, but Starskin Star Hutch uh, reruns to you know, give people around the world oh, yeah. that they have a right to uh, to ask for a lawyer present, you know, when they're interrogated by the cops. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I I just thought that was common. Yeah. I never, and I had been arrested hundreds, I mean, literally over a hundred times doing my work as a journalist. But, uh, um, you know, that was for like five hours. And then they're just like, get, you know, because the way it works, like you're in a demonstration in the West Bank and they literally have these uh, um, like uh, uh, phone printers and they get a printout from the army base saying that it's a closed military zone and they'll show it to you and they'll say, but it, it says from five minutes ago, you can't be here. And then it's like, well, but they're, you know, we're there, we're, there's uh, Palestinians that are, you know, uh, harvesting olives. And they goes, no, you have to go. So they arrest you for five minutes. So I was used to that, but not anyway. So they used this uh, new um, uh, rule or new uh, uh, definition of incitement to investigate me uh, uh, for and uh, for five years, um, this went on. I was called back and back again to the police, and so like I mean, I just think this is a lesson where you know we can call for we, we see what the right is doing, 
And then we can say, you know, oh, you know, we don't like that. Let's do something to stop them from their ability to use that, to do that. And as you said, guaranteed that will be used against us much more than them. I mean, I, I was just one uh, about that. There was, I mean, like literally, like while I, while that happened to me, I mean, it's just you can see how, like, if you're a left wing, that's used against you. I mean, Avigdor Lieberman, which is he's the head of Israel Beitenu, which is one of the Israeli, like, farthest right national yeah, uh, nationalist movement. Literally, as I understand it, advocate the uh, the deportation uh, of of all uh, Arabs, including citizens, you know, from the country. Yeah, he would be for that. Anyway, so he literally said in 2015 that Arab citizens who are not loyal to the state of Israel should have their ch their heads chopped off with an axe. <laughs> so, I mean, those who, quote, those who are with us deserve everything, but those who are against us deserve to have their heads chopped off with an axe. So, like, I mean, if anything, that is a call for incitement. Was anything done about that? No. Why? Because he's... Yeah. Yeah, I mean the people the, the people that these things are going to be used uh, most against uh, are are the people who the uh, the enforcers of the rules like the uh, the least. And if you start from the premise that uh, the uh, the people who uh, are in charge of society right now, you know, don't like us and what we stand for, which you know, if you don't, I, I don't understand what you think the left is. Uh, mm -hmm. Then then that that seems like a that seems like a given. You know, of course, it's mostly going to be used against us and maybe the version of that in America and, you know, 2021 after we have whatever kind of God awful Patriot Act part two, uh, yeah, that, that okay. ends up getting passed as a result of this, you know, uh, that, you know, says, you know, it's about domestic terrorism, you know, that I'm sure anybody who people are going to be able to say is, you know, Antifa or whatever, you know, like that's, you know, that's going to be, uh, what it's going to be used against at least as much as probably much more than uh, the uh, the far right. So I think that's a that's a useful uh, that's a useful cautionary tale. Just want to uh, just want to share that with uh, with viewers. Uh, thank you so much, Brian. No, definitely. Thank you. You're welcome. And yes, have a good day. All right, you too. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so uh, that's Brian Atinsky, formerly of uh, Indie Media uh, Israel, now uh, you know living in the United States, where whatever else you can say, at least you can have a lawyer present when you're being interrogated. Uh, so um, terrifying, yeah. like just terrifying yeah. that you know. I mean, Israel is seen as, I mean, you know, by by a lot of people that aren't necessarily paying attention to the to the facts on the ground. You know, Israel is seen as kind of one of the most liberal democracies if you take away the, the whole Palestinian rights part. So, you know, it's, it's terrifying that um, their security state is, is. Yeah. And, and again, like this is, uh, and of course, like many aspects of, of that are, you know, obviously predate anything that Brian is talking about. Um, you know, the, uh, this, you know, having, even uh, Arab citizens, you know, Arab citizens of Israel, never mind Palestinians, the West Bank and Gaza, you know, treated as, you know, third or fourth class citizens, obviously goes back a long way. But that specific stuff he's talking about that was used against them was pushed for by Israeli liberals to crack down a right wing incitement after the Rabin assassination. So um, we're thinking about uh, along similar lines, I will say uh, that. Um, the uh, episode uh, 23 for uh, for patrons, the uh, the Thursday episode 
uh, is going to um, be an interview uh, with uh, Dasha from Red Scare uh, about, you know, a lot of much bigger issues about their podcast and you know how she feels about the left and the things we agree and disagree on, but also about a lot of this free speech stuff uh, because uh, the Red Scare uh, Twitter account uh, was um, um, was deplatformed recently, apparently as part of some big sweep, uh, along obviously with lots of far right accounts that were you know deplatformed after the. Um, uh, after the Capitol riots, and I, I that's think, always that's always how it goes. You know, yeah. there's always a there's always a big sweep up of both you know left and right accounts, or I guess post left as yeah, <laughs> probably consider themselves. Yeah, she expressed some ambivalence about about the left. We actually got pretty deep in the interview into like what she agreed with and what she didn't agree with. You know, about like what you know, um, hopelessly earnest commies like me think. But uh, in any case. Uh, so we'll probably play a little bit of that uh, later on. Uh, I will. Uh, I will say uh, if you want to have access to uh, the whole thing, to uh, the episode we did uh, last week with uh, Gene Bajalon, uh, the Beginner's Guide to the Kurdish Liberation Struggle, and every other uh, patron uh, bonus episode, just head over to Patreon.com/slash Ben Burgess. That's for the. Uh, Monthly cost of a milkshake at a fifties nostalgia diner in nineteen ninety four. Uh, never going to get sick of that joke. Uh, you can get the uh, get access to all of that stuff and the Discord and the uh, regularly scheduled Discord office hours uh, group voice chats. So um, do do that if you possibly can. If you like the work that we're doing here and you want to support it, uh, and uh, you get all that good stuff as a as a gesture of gratitude. Uh, meanwhile, though, I want to bring on uh, Thaddeus Russell. Uh, who is, among other things, uh, the uh, the author of a book called The Renegade History of the uh, the United States. Uh, he is uh, the host of the uh, the Unregistered podcast. Uh, does and coordinates lots of online teaching uh, outside the university system at you know Renegade University he calls it, uh, and is uh, is somebody who I thought would be uh, be interesting to uh, to have on for uh, for a few reasons. Uh, one of which is that I know that uh, I know that he's somebody who has a critique of socialism, and of course that's part of what I want to talk about today. But I think one of the things that's uh, most interesting about Thaddeus is that unlike the uh, you know vast majority of people who have such a critique, he very deeply knows what he's talking about. You know, this is uh, you know this is something um, you know when when I was talking to him over the weekend, you know we we were sort of getting into and comparing notes about like he, he has really deep personal and family uh, roots on, uh, on the socialist left uh, has uh, has spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about, you know, uh, about labor history and radical history in the United States. So, um, you know, if he, if he disagrees, at least, you know, that, uh, that he's not disagreeing just on the basis of like having watched red Dawn a couple times too many. So uh, welcome Thaddeus. I, I never seen red Dawn, but thanks for having me on. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, the, um, the original is, is fun in a campy and ridiculous kind of way. I don't know that the, uh, I don't know the remake has much going for it. Wolverines, right? Isn't that what they yeah, say? Yeah. That's why. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's all I know about it. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I remember I listened a, to an interview with you a, a few years ago, uh, on uh, on something called uh, the uh, nostalgia trap and uh, and mm -hmm. I've 
much more recently, I went back, you know, when, because, uh, you know, people had suggested you as a guest, I was looking at your stuff, and I, I remember him talking about it, but I hadn't listened to any of this at the time. Uh, I listened to your uh, two conversations with uh, Michael Brooks, uh, one of them uh, on uh, the um, one of them on your podcast, uh, and uh, and one of them was like a webinar at uh, at, at Renegade University, mm-hmm. and you know I think if if like whatever else you want to say about any of that, like those are just really good conversations. Those are those are those are fun to listen to if you're you know I mean if I think I think for if you're if you're interested in this stuff, like mm-hmm. uh, so I, I think that um, so yeah I thought it would be really good to uh, to have you on, but. Uh, do you want to just start off by by going in a little bit uh, into what I was what I was teasing earlier about your, uh, you know, your personal backstory with the socialist left? Yeah, but not nearly as deeply as you and I talked about. Was it last night, two nights ago? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have time to go that deep. But, yeah, <laughs> like, How many hours did we did we spend talking about various Trotskyist sects? Um, we did not talk about Trotskyist sects, which I think is grossly. Um, under uh, uh, appreciated, there was Trotskyist sex, just not enough of it. That's why I left socialism. So, no, I, my parents were Trotskyists. I was born into a family in Berkeley in the mid 1960s. They were members at that time when I was born. I think they were members at that point of Young People's Socialist League, YPSL, which some people on the left know about. And then uh, that pretty quickly became the IS, the International Socialists. And so I was born, uh, born and raised a socialist in Berkeley in the 60s and 70s. And my parents stayed in the movement and they were so committed to the movement that they industrialized. They got jobs, as I'm sure your, a lot of your listeners will know about this concept. Got jobs uh, as proletarians. My father, stepfather was a, a steel worker and then a truck driver. And my mother was a clerical worker and they were organizing the working class for the revolution. And uh, that didn't work out. And so in the late 70s, they left the movement and got bourgeois jobs, more or less. And they've since then been sort of just like Bernie-ish, MSNBC type, kind of establishment liberals, so left liberal types. But I, um, yeah, that was me. I'm kind of some like still with some kind of commitment to socialism, if only in a sort of um, distant theoretical way. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. They don't really talk about it that much, but there's certainly all I know is that they, that they refer to Democrats by their first name, which is sort of, <laughs> that's a bad I don't, I don't want, yeah, it's that bad. I don't even want to go there. So yeah. Um, one thing I will say that really hits me about that story is that in the seventies, there were so many of these jobs of steel workers and stuff around that you could, that like, it was just there for the, for the take. Right. If you, wanted <laughs> you, could just, you could just go get a job as a steel worker. Nowadays, like millennials are like, wow, we could get it. You could get a job as a steel worker. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he was a truck driver for many years for Safeway, and he was organizing for the Teamsters, or really he was organizing within the Teamsters against the Teamsters. He co-founded what became Teamsters for a Democratic Union. Some people might know about that. Then it was called Teamsters for a Democratic Contract. But yeah, he was, uh, this is my yeah, stuff. Right? The Irish, that would be, uh, that'll be the other side. I've heard. Yeah, right. I've heard. Yeah. So, and, and there is a, that's one of many reasons why I ended up writing my dissertation on Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters is sort of how I found out about it. And then I found out that no, no labor historian really had written any serious study of either the Teamsters or Hoffa. And I thought that was an odd lacuna. <laughs> so I uh, went about it and was told that I shouldn't do that at the Tamamet library. Some archivist there said, you know, 
there's more interesting things to write about with the Teamsters, like the dissident faction within. And I said, yeah, I know my stepfather founded it. And actually, I think it's more interesting to talk about the stuff that no one's paid attention to is yeah. the fact that the Teamsters <laughs> is the biggest, the biggest union in the history of the United States. And there's no scholarly work on it so far, which is fairly outrageous. So I try to fill that hole. Yeah, I literally founded it, right? Like, like, like at the uh, the Teamsters for a decent contract. That was the original name. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, I, like, like I think you were saying that was like literally like started at a meeting at your at like your family's kitchen table. Yep. Yep. The newspaper was called the Fifth Wheel, and they used to lay it out on our kitchen table in in the little hovel we lived in in Berkeley. And then in like nineteen seventy, that would have been like probably mid 70s, 74, 75, somewhere in there. I could I could get you the exact date. Actually, it might have been a little bit earlier because it was around the time the Teamsters were fighting with the UFW, the farm workers. Um, and that was really what he was involved in, was trying to get the Teamsters to take the so-called good side on the side of the UFW. But this is all very like... Yeah, yeah. So, so this inside baseball stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but as far as your as your trajectory out of all that, uh, right. you, uh, So I remember that you said uh, that you. So when you were you were writing that thesis uh, about the Teamsters, uh, or at some point over the course of uh, of that research, mm -hmm. uh, you decided that like one of the lessons of this history, from your perspective was that uh, exclusive representation, which is something that, you know, labor is often fought for, mm -hmm. uh, is actually a bad thing for workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So the question I had was, why was Jimmy Hoffa so militant, so aggressive, and so good at getting contracts, and therefore, consequently, very popular among his membership? I think most labor historians would agree that he was the most popular labor leader in the United States, at least among the membership, the rank and file. Now, that's not to say there weren't factions like my stepfather's factions. Uh, which were, you know, highly anti-Hoffa, but he was wildly popular. And I interviewed a lot of Teamsters, ex-Teamsters who, who were in their 70s and 80s, and they just adored him because mostly he got, they got, he got the contract. So I, that was the question I went into the study with, and I found out that the reason was that Jimmy was constantly in competition with other unions at that time in the 30s and 40s. It was mostly, not entirely, but mostly CIO unions, so sort of the famous left liberal unions that there were many books written about. Because in trucking, trucking touches every other industry pretty much, right? And so those industries at that time were being were being rapidly unionized by these very aggressive CIO unions. And so if the warehousemen are controlled by one union, they're, they're a threat to the truckers union as well. And so Hoffa was forced to get good contracts to win these members against the competition. And so what ended up happening was I discovered sort of this market argument or, you know, market mechanism within labor history that I that was actually I found to be, you know, good for the rank and file, good for the working class generally, at least good for union members. And um, this was not OK. It was not OK at all to say this, because, of course, we must have one big union, you know, for the big revolution. This is what my parents were fighting for. And if you have unions and the working class divided in this way, not just divided, but actually competing rivalrous that will never come to pass. You'll never get the IWW's one big union idea, or really, I mean, this is what socialism is predicated on. I mean, you got to have, you know, an organized working class that's centralized ultimately. So um, I said, well, sorry, I'm going to write this anyway. And they couldn't make heads or tails of it. And it was, it was attacked, not, I wouldn't say viciously, but it was certainly attacked in the New York Times, Washington Post, and sort of some of the academic journals at the time. My advisors, who is uh, the sort of very 
they're all well known. This is at Columbia. Eric Foner mm -hmm. was there. Joshua Freeman, some people might know who that is, a uh, good left um, labor historian. Uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, one of the most important labor historians of the time, who was also a comrade of my parents. They just couldn't stand the politics of it. And they said, uh, well, you know, if this is this is about markets, you know? And I said, well, yeah. And they said, well, what have markets done for the, for people lately, for the working class lately? And I said, well, that's sort of not really relevant. Why are we, uh, why are we having this discussion? Uh, because I thought I proved my point pretty well. So it didn't go over very well. And that was really begin the beginning of my exit from the left. Although there were a lot of reasons for my exit from the left, but that was certainly one of them. Um, and I'm actually no longer really interested in labor at all. <laughs> I really, I was, uh, you know, when you're a Marxist as I was and a socialist as I was, and you're in graduate school in history, you kind of have to do labor history. It was almost a requirement back then, back in the eighties and nineties, that's what most people were doing. Um, and I just found even that was bankrupt ideologically and intellectually. So um, we can talk about that, but I mean, there are actually sort of deeper, more interesting reasons for why yeah, I- Yeah, well, well, I, I want to get into this. Uh, I, I was actually just going to ask you, because I'm curious uh, if, I know you said you weren't that interested in it at this point, but if you've read, uh, Sean Richman uh, wrote a book called uh, Tell the Bosses That We're Coming, that's, uh, is, okay, so mm -hmm. it's an attempt to sort of rethink like what counts as a union, you know, like what we think of as a unionized workplace, as a union okay. contract to kind of try to figure out like what's been working and what's not. And he, and Sean is somebody who's you know still very much a socialist, but I, I think, I think there might be an interesting convergence about some of the uh, exclusive representation stuff. Uh, but I do, I do want to get into your, your deeper, more interesting reasons. So I, I, I think okay. that um, you, my understanding is that you're not like, necessarily a libertarian in the sense that some of the people that I'll you know have on the show to argue with are, are libertarians mm -hmm. uh, that you know that you don't have some sort of vision in your head of a uh, of what like how society should work where you know we have no. uh, you know well we can probably just stop the sentence there right you know yeah that's really important that's a, that's extremely yeah. important right I mean for someone to not have a utopia mm -hmm. right is a very important part of one's politics right and that's exactly right about me. But continue. Sorry. No, no, no. Okay. So, so yeah. I think that's I think that's important to uh, to be yeah. clear on uh, that. You know, so it's it's not. I think that you have like this kind of deep in principle uh, objection to having, you know, public anything under any circumstances. Mm. Uh, that, but but you do have. But you know, you are you know hostile to socialism. You have you have. I think it would be, I think it would be fair to say in terms of day-to-day -day politics even if there's no like utopia as the lodestar for the whole thing mm -hmm. some fairly libertarian impulses you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so mm -hmm. so let's uh, so let's let's get into uh let's let's get into the deeper uh, deeper reasons uh so mm -hmm. just like like on a on a basic level uh so if I say I'm a socialist because I I want to have mm -hmm. a society where um you know people's uh you know, people's basic needs are guaranteed, you know, are guaranteed, uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, nobody has to, you know, worry about, and I could, you know, list off a bunch of things that we have to worry about in the kind of society that we have right now. And I think that it's, it's, it's unreasonable. It's unfair that people, uh, don't have control over this huge part of their lives that, uh, that happens mm -hmm. at, the, uh, at the workplace that most people in most circumstances, you know, some of us can, you know, become, you know, petty bourgeois podcasters and whatnot, but, you know, mm -hmm. most people 
uh, don't uh, don't realistically have any alternative most of the time, except for to uh, to go to work for others and you know and, and submitting you know to them, and sure. that feels like an unreasonable you know restriction on autonomy. So mm-hmm. for all of those reasons, you know, if I told you, and I would, you know, I mean, this is obviously the short version, but I mean, this is more or less what I would say mm-hmm. that, you know, that, uh, that I'm a, I'm a, you know, that I'm a socialist, you know, I don't necessarily have, um, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly more utopian, uh, than, uh, than you are, because I do have some fairly specific ideas about how society can be reorganized from the way it is right now. Mm-hmm. Although I'd also make a distinction between thinking that, uh, being a utopian in the sense of here's the amazing way that things could work that would solve every problem that we have right now. Mm-hmm. And here's something that seems achievable that would solve a whole lot of problems that mattered to me a lot, even though some of mm-hmm. them and you know, whatever, but mm-hmm. um, why shouldn't I be like, what's, 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 what, what's wrong with what I just said? Oh, nothing at all. I mean, so the only question I would have been is, um, am I included in the socialist Republic that you want to build? Uh, yeah. I mean, by, by oh. definition, not surely. Okay, so that's that's all that matters. So if I'm not included, you go have you go have a blast, buddy. You go do your socialism wherever you want it to be. If you're leaving me alone, then I am not hostile to socialism whatsoever. I would, in fact, I would welcome a socialist secession. When California threatened to to break off after Trump was elected in 2016, I thought, let's go, let's do the Green New Deal all the way in California and see how that goes. I mean, I mean it. Let's let's see how that works out. Now, if if I'm included. Um, first of all, I didn't give you permission to include me. Mm. So no, already, no. already we're in trouble. <laughs> no, I well, I mean, like I, I think then we're in trouble with with any possible form of uh, of social organization, you know, because uh, none of us, you know, get to decide, you know, what kind of society we're uh, we're going to be born into. There are always going to be some kind of rules of the road that regulate how that society works. And you know, I, I hope if we have a decent mm-hmm. society that we can all have some meaningful level of democratic input, but we're certainly not going to get uh, individual veto power over what the basic ground rules are. I don't know how that would work in any society, capitalist, socialist, feudal, whatever. Okay. Uh, but uh, but in um, so here, I think there are ways that you could be left out of it and there are ways that you can't be left out of it. So let's, let's, let's see if we can, we can, we can bore down a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, ways that we, you know, that you could, you know, you could potentially, uh, be uh, be left out of it is if we still had you know if we did the sorts of things that I think um, you know I'm uh, actually working on a book with uh, Bhaskar Sankara and Mike Beggs about this uh, arrogantly entitled the Blueprint uh, and uh, in, uh, in that uh, okay. uh-huh. yeah yeah uh, and um, you know, figure might as well just own it uh, so uh, yeah. so if you uh, if you think look we could take some things outside of the market entirely. Uh, we could, you know, we could, uh, so, um, you know, certainly things like healthcare and, you know, and education, uh, that mm. I would want, you know, we can get into this, but I would certainly want those things, uh, outs, you know, outside of the, uh, outside of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we could maybe have state ownership of what are sometimes called the commanding heights of the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we, uh, if we do still, uh, you know, have a, a private sector. And I think there are reasons I'm less moved than you are by the in principle reasons, but uh, I think that, I think there are reasons why you might still need to do that. Uh, then at least we can have that be dominated uh, by, uh, by worker cooperatives, uh, you know, mm-hmm. but look, if you have, um, if you want to be, you know, like, a, you know, like if you want to be some sort of extremely small business person, uh, then, uh, then there, I think there is a sense in which you could be left out. Now, 
There is a, also a sense, I, I, I want to be honest about this, mm-hmm. that you couldn't be left out, which is that if nothing else, uh, you know, you, you would have to, you know, you would have to be, be taxed quite a bit, you know, to, uh, to, pay, you know, to pay for all that stuff that we started with. Mm-hmm. So uh, are you objecting to being included in that sense? Oh, yeah. I object to all of it. Well, I don't, again, I don't object. I just won't do it. So you, this you is... This is this is exactly the conversation I had with the late great Michael Brooks. In fact, on my show, you may have heard this. I said, Michael, you know, um, you can have a socialist republic, but I'm not going to work for it. I'm not going to participate in it. I'm not going to co-manage society. I'm not going to go to any meetings. And as far as I understand it, as you know, someone who was not just born a Trotskyist, but was you know a member of the Democratic Socialists of America into my ni- into my thirties. Okay, I've done this. I've been there. I've I've read the stuff. You know, I taught I taught capital at Columbia. Uh, it I don't I'm not. This is not just petulance here. You know, this is an actual theoretical critique that, but it comes through in a different way that most people don't hear. Which is, what are you going to do, man? What are you going to do to me? You know, you know, right. Well, let me just so I mean, as I understand it, as I understand it, it requires participation by everyone or at least almost everyone for it to be socialism. Otherwise, it looks like the Soviet Union. And I know you don't want that. And I know I know a lot of socialists don't want that because, again, I was born a Trotskyist. So I know the difference between uh, Stalinism and, and, you know, sort of what's called democratic socialism. They were called democratic Leninists, by the way, which is a funny, funny idea. But anyway, we can get to that later. Um, so yeah, like um, you're going to need me to participate to go to some meetings, and I hate meetings. I've been to so many, having been a socialist. I've been to so many meetings, and I'm sur- sure as hell not going to do any work for some socialist republic. I'm not going to do work for any republic. I'm an anti-nationalist. I, I'm opposed to borders. You know. I'm, I don't like the whole thing. I don't want to work for some government, no matter what it is, no matter who's running it. So again, it's really, it's on you guys. Like I don't have, I'm not proposing some new model, some blueprint for society. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, you guys are, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I love, I love you guys. I do. I love you guys. You're like family, literally pretty much, but what are you going to do to me? How are you going to make, I'm not going to work for you. I'm not okay. going to well, let's, well, let's, let's see if we can break some of that down. Okay. So, cool. uh, so I, I, so I think that, uh, that when it comes to, uh, you know, you said you talk capital. So of course, you know, that one thing that's, uh, that's not in capital is any, is any of what uh, Marx calls in one of the introductions, uh, recipes for the cookshops of the future, right. uh, you know, which is obviously there's no socialism. There's no socialism. Yeah. Yeah. There's no description right. of, of socialism in, right. in uh, uh, in capital, uh, which you know, which which I, I actually think is a mistake. Uh, that the uh, oh. that you that you, I think if you're going to take uh, get people to, um, I understand Marx's reasons for for that, but I actually think if you're going to get people to take something seriously, you, you do need to, at mm-hmm. some point, you know, uh, spell out you know how it would work, especially if yeah. there are historical examples that aren't positive, like you alluded to. Uh, but uh, but look, uh, would you have to uh, would you have to uh, to go to meetings? Well. Uh, if you uh, if you're self-employed, uh, then uh, then no. If you uh, if you worked at a cooperative, maybe. If we look at actually existing cooperatives, uh, like uh, the uh, the Mondragon Corporation uh, in Spain, I think that uh, I think that they do require attendance at like an annual general assembly uh, where they elect management. But you do basically elect management, and you know you you aren't. Um, you know, you aren't at constant meetings. And I'm with you, by the way. I hate meetings. Like I, I I'm not like 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 I I think. 
that's actually my criticism of, of some suggestions that, you know, some uh, mm-hmm. suggestions that have been made for, for how socialism works, um, you know, like uh, participatory economics that uh, it sounds like way, way, way too many meetings with, you know, to me. So, so fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but also I question that link even in general between uh, economic democracy uh, and, and having to, uh, to, to engage in civic participation uh, if you uh, if you don't want to, uh, so we already have um, in a very um, you know incomplete form, uh, we already have political democracy, and uh, nobody forces you uh, to uh, to go to uh, you know to go to local meetings. Uh, even if you live in one of those New England towns where they still have town meetings, mm. I don't think anybody forces you to uh, to go to those. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure where the uh, the force is coming in here, unless it's a condition of a specific job. Uh, but then except with paying taxes, but I know that when you presumably uh, when you say you're not going to do it, you don't really mean you're not going to pay taxes because presumably you already do that in the society that we're living in. And those taxes go to things that you would quite rightly find much more objectionable, like, um, you know, droning weddings in Pakistan. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I mean, so you're going to need cops, though. So my money, my tax money is going to go to cops yeah, because there are, there are so. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to make the claim that's not gonna go anything uh, to, to to anything that you don't like. I'm very uh, I'm very skeptical uh, right. that you can have a society uh, with uh, without some form of, uh, you know, security forces. You know, I'm not a uh, I'm not a police abolitionist. I'm a you know, I think. Right. That, I think the police should be certainly well, dramatically reformed and demilitarized, you know, from, from the kind of policing that exists right now. I think there are lots of things that we send like armed first responders to now that you could certainly sure. send unarmed first responders to. Right. But I do think that you are probably in just about any society, certainly any society that we could realistically imagine anytime soon, you are going to have to have some sort of <laughs> mechanism for for uh, for enforcing uh, enforcing laws. Uh-huh. Uh, if you you know, I, I know um, our our mutual friend, uh, you know, Dave Smith. You know, will will we'll tell uh-huh. you that you know, under uh, you know he does have a utopia, and in that utopia, you know, mm-hmm. that I guess those would be uh, those would be private cops. Uh, you know, in, in for, enforcing laws because there wouldn't be any public ones. That's how, that one sounds a lot worse to me. But mm. whether it's public or private, you are going to have to have something. I don't see a way around that. So, mm-hmm. you know, you would presumably have to have uh, have taxes. You know, that would that would pay if you mm-hmm. are a police abolitionist. Maybe in that example, uh, you know, for some stuff uh, that you uh, that you don't like. Uh, maybe you would even maybe you'd even be libertarian enough that you'd object to paying taxes to. Uh, to pay for uh, for other people's health care. Uh, mm-hmm. But I guess one maybe fundamental difference uh, between us is that as a restriction of freedom, if that's the issue, then I get, I think that saying that some of the money in my bank account is going to be taken away so that other people, uh, you know, can have health care and, you know, they can, uh, they can go to college and, you know, they can have a place to live and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, which seems like okay, so that's that's a violation, I guess, of my freedom to spend every penny that I'd otherwise get pre-tax uh, with mm-hmm. you know government minted currency and complex you know economic mm-hmm. arrangements that I'm very skeptical could exist without a government. But you know that that's a restriction of my freedom to spend every penny of that how how I want. 
But I'm a lot less worried about that than I am about other kinds of unfreedom that you get with uh, arbitrary domination of some people than others in uh, in workplaces. And I'll, I'll just give you one small social democratic example, and then you can tell me why I'm wrong about it. Okay. So it, it seems to me like there's a book called um, The Nordic Way of Everything by a journalist named Aru Parantin or something, anyway, some, uh, some name like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so who uh, is a uh, Finnish... A writer came to the United States and she describes when she came to the United States being shocked by what seemed to her almost like pre-modern forms of dependency in the way that workers wouldn't want to um, to quit even jobs that they hated because they were worried about losing their health insurance, that, uh, that uh, people would stay in bad marriages, sometimes even abusive marriages, sometimes for the same reason. They mm-hmm. couldn't, you know, they couldn't lose the, uh, they couldn't lose the health insurance uh, or, you know, in a second example, you know, that uh, parent, you know, that the relationship between parents and uh, and children uh, who are going to college, uh, that, the, uh, that the the children are a lot more dependent uh, on their uh, on their parents as young adults, you know, because uh, because the parents can cut off uh, their uh, their college tuition. And and it seems to me that having these things guaranteed by the state in that sense, like that's that's a kind of freedom that speaks to me a lot more than my freedom to spend mm-hmm. every penny in my bank account how I wish, but mm-hmm. you don't see it that way. Well, okay, so first of all, it sounds like you're laying out the Corey Robin argument, right? That yeah. so- socialism provides uh, economic freedom, mm-hmm. freedom from want, which is really Franklin Roosevelt's idea, right? The freedom from want speech back in 1930 something. Um, no, see, you're not getting it. I don't have a principled objection to socialism. I'm telling you, I won't do it. So, and <laughs> well, I mean, well, you won't do what? Well, I won't do it, Ben, unless you have cops, right? I won't what, pay. What, what's the it? Do, well, I won't pay anything. I won't pay taxes. Pay just, taxes. Okay, very good. But that's what we started with, right? So, so you have to have cops to, otherwise, I'm not going to pay any taxes for you, mm-hmm. for your socialist republic. Okay. So that means you're going to have to have cops with guns and the threat of violence, the threat of putting me in a cage, right? Or killing me. That's well, got to be there. So, so, but but you could say the same thing about just having property that uh, that you know that if you have uh, that for you know for one person to uh, to own a building you know that uh, that another person you know can't you know can't be a squatter in uh, you know you have to have some sort of implicit uh, implicit sure. threat of violence right so I mean if if I if I said, hey, I'm not going to recognize, you know, your property rights over that building, I'm not going to do it. How are you going to make me do it, Thad? I'm not going to do it. You know, it, it seems to oh. me that we can have the parallel argument, which goes to the point about how all societies have rules, right? It's it's just a, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's a question of how they're made, whose interests mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're in, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, But there are going to, at some point, I'm very skeptical, and I would assume, as a as a non utopian, you know, you join me in your in your in my skepticism that you're ever going to have a society without coercion. The, the question is just which rules we want to coercively enforce. Um, so it's coercive for me to stop someone from stealing my shit with, well, violence, with violence. Is that coercive? Uh, well? The, the question is whether it's in whether and in what sense it's your shit. So the uh, the, distinction, the distinction that I would make is that when you say, right. um, you know, like surely nobody means right. Like people who, who really are, you know, utopian libertarians, you know, who say mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that, that aggression, you know, is, is never justified. Well, what counts as aggression depends 
on who should have what. And the should is really important mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if it's a question of who legally is entitled to what, well, you know, the mm -hmm. IRS is legally entitled to that portion of, you know, of, of your income. So there's no, you know, then like mm -hmm. uh, you know, the whole, the whole objection to taxation on these grounds, you know, would just be, uh, would just be self-defeating. Uh, so, uh, so it seems like it has to be a, uh, a normative thing that, you know, uh, and mm. similarly, if, you know, I mean, look, if I, uh, if I take, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, if I steal your TV, right, you know, then, mm -hmm. uh, then presumably, you know, you don't think that it's, it's coercive in a bad sense uh, to, uh, to come take it back from me because it's rightfully yours. So I think the right. question is, what is rightfully yours and what's not rightfully yours. Right. And that seems like at that point, we're arguing about theories of, uh, of economic justice. You know, what we think, uh, what we think a morally right distribution should be, which, you know, which is yeah. terrain that I'm much happier on. Yeah, exactly. So this is why you ha should have a different guest on because I'm non-normative, Ben. I've been trying to explain this for okay, half, okay. half an hour now, right? Like, I don't care. Like, if you want to go, I just said this, I said it earlier, if you want to go have a socialist republic, go have a blast, go do it. I, I don't I don't care if you're asking me what my preference is, sure. which is the only that's the only sure. question I have for myself. Sure. That's the question I have for myself is which do I prefer? Do I prefer going to 27 meetings to plan what stoplights are installed on which streets and who uh, picks up the stray dogs and what the foreign policy of the republic will be and how many cops we have and what the da, 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 da. I mean, real socialism, right? Real deal socialism, real economic democracy is exhausting. And we've all known this. Anybody who's like participated in any organization that is at all democratic, including businesses, right, that operate democratically in some sense, it's just nonstop work. And I'm just not going to do it. So do I prefer to have property rights as Western society has constructed them, which I absolutely see how they constructed them, you know? I think I do because it sounds like the alternative is your cops are going to come steal my shit. So I prefer to well, just have what I have now. Well, 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 hold on. If the uh, <laughs> uh, if if you if we're not comparing socialism uh, to some sort of libertarian utopia because you don't yeah. have a utopia, you're non-normative. Yeah. Uh, you know, then uh, then what we're presumably talking about right now. Uh, is right now what we yeah, have yeah. right now versus yeah, right socialism. Now. And yeah. so, and so the question, look, if, if the only, if the only force that we're talking about uh, is that you're, is that you're forced to pay taxes, Hey, you're forced to pay taxes right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so what the, the preference can't be about whether police exist or taxation exists or, you know, anything like that uh, because, because those things, those things already exist. So if you do, if you don't want to call it nor, you know, if you if you don't want to call it normative, you're just expressing your your personal you know likes and dislikes. Preference. Preference. Uh, then uh, then okay. So those personal likes and dislikes don't seem like they can be about the actual existence of taxes or um, yeah. or or police because if they're about the existence of taxes or police, then it seems like what you're really doing is not just expressing a non-preference for socialism. You're expressing a preference for some sort of libertarian utopia of the kind that I thought you didn't have. No, 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 no. So you're going to have to bleep this out because I'll get arrested. So I cheat the IRS as much as I can, right? As yeah, any, right? as any, oh, oh, whatever. As any sane person I would think would do, I cheat and lie as much as possible to pay them as little as possible. Okay. And 
And so I'm not talking about a utopia. My political agenda vis-a-vis -vis the IRS is to pay them even less, right? I want to pay them even less. And ideally, I'd like to pay them nothing ever again. So there you are. I mean, again, you're going to have to I mean, do that, something. That, that ideally almost sounded like uh, like we were sneaking in a utopia under the wire because, uh, well, you know, like your actual preference would be for a radically different society. Oh, okay. Taxation at all. I mean, abolishing the IRS. But again, this is just for me. Like, I know some people love the IRS. I've I've met a few in captivity, people who actually like the IRS, but I don't. So again, I don't need I don't need the IRS to be abolished. I just need it to be abolished in my life. No, I mean it. I, I'm. This is you understand, right? This is actually a fairly penetrating critique. I think I'm making of socialism. In other words, I am not the only one you're going to have to deal well, with, right? Well, 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 well the, the penetrating not, critique is that taxes would still exist. The, the no. taxes haven't stopped. Wouldn't stop existing let me, in society. Let me, to, let me try to flesh this out. Okay. Sure. So the critique I'm making here, in a joking way, yeah. is that I realized among many problems with socialism. Well, there's many for me. One is just the amount of work. And I'm not kidding you, honest to God. Like I just, when I realized what it really meant and after I'd been in comrades meetings that lasted 10, 12, 16 hours mm -hmm. and I studied the history of left and everybody talked about, and this was just running some little tiny sectarian organization of Trotskyists, right? Try running a city or a country or the world, which is what socialism ultimately is. Everybody's got to work nonstop. So cancel all your fun. Hold on, wait a second. And then what I'm getting at here is, that underlying the whole project is a whole system of violence. You've got to, you've got to do mean, you and I are friends. I like you. You're a nice guy. You know, like I want to work with you, you know, and that's cool. And none of it, but the fact is your politics requires you to do very, very mean things to me. Well, I mean, if you, if you prefer, not if your preferences include, as you say, Western property rights, as they've been constructed, et cetera, mm -hmm. then your preferences include, a system of violence to enforce those property rights. There's no, there's no property rights without violence to enforce property rights. But, yeah. uh, but as, as well, far as far as the the work thing, hmm. um, you know, I I don't think that you know I think we could have representative democratic institutions, you know, without forcing people to uh, to go to meetings. But that's one thing. But as How? far as work goes, I, I think there is some overlap where we can have a conversation here because hey, sure, fair enough. You know, fun is good. You know, having to work all the time is bad. No, no argument for me on on either of those points. Uh, but it well, seems okay. Okay. So I was going to say just here. quick, quick interjection. Sure, okay. sure. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's that's a little le uh, leftover academic hat at the the finger for for a a question that's not a full yeah. hand raise. But yeah, go for it. <laughs> Peace, man. Okay, here we go. Okay, yeah, I just uh, saw the finger. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Go ahead. No, I know. No, I know. Fun. No, you said you said you liked fun. Um, yeah. So listen, you know the history of socialism, right? The history of socialism and fun is not a pretty one. Socialists have been explicitly, officially, officially anti-fun since the get-go until, until they moved to Brooklyn and became 30-year-old millennial guys. But when they were real, no, I'm dead serious here. Like I know look, you're serious. I I I think it flattered some stuff, but but make your point. Tell me, tell me a socialist who has embraced fun. Tell uh, so tell me a socialist who's uh, who's embraced fun. Um, I think that uh, well, look, uh, I'll I'll give you I'll give you two I'll give you okay. two historical examples that okay. I think you agree are uh, are not minor uh, examples or you know deep cuts. Um, okay. 
Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. The uh, you know Frederick Engels was uh, was referred to, I think, by his son-in-law in letters as uh, the great beheader of champagne bottles. Uh, he uh, at some at one point, uh, wow. you know, he he seemed to be in you know living in a menage a trois with you know with with two sisters. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, you know I think you know Karl Marx. You know, read letters by people who used to go bar hopping in London with Karl Marx. I think those guys liked fun. I'm not really aware of of of, of anywhere. All right. In their writings that, that, that I've read, at least. Uh, let, me, that, let me clarify my question. Sure. Uh, I meant, of course, they've all like had fun and done things that were, well, I hope, God forbid, you know, but then again, I'm talking about their politics, right? Publicly, what their position was on fun. Ain't, it's always been negative. Always okay, been. Okay. So, 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 wait, wait, wait. Socialism okay. and Puritanism, right, have been like this. They've loved each other. They love each other. Lenin and Trotsky were famously opposed to homosexuality, not because it was gross or dirty, but because it was bourgeois and decadent. Well, decadent. Because hom homosexuality was legalized in the uh, the Russian Revolution. It was only recriminalized by Stalin. Uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know about that specific example. Uh, they uh, they also uh, they also legalized abortion. They also made it a lot easier to get a divorce than it ever had been before. So I'm, I'm not I'm not sure about the uh, the sexual puritanism of the Russian Revolution. Lenin called it decadence. Dec okay, decadence. Okay. Well, no, no. Let's hold on just a second. So that okay. word decadence, right? Yeah. It crops up in all kinds of socialist writing. If you just Google that, you know, Google any great socialist thinker and then put the word decadence next to it, you're going to find just scathing polemics about bourgeois decadence, which is all about like fun. Pop culture, okay. so, like so, that, right? So, so, so I, well, I don't know. I mean, if again, if you have places where uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels uh, took a, uh, you know, like took a break from, uh, you know, from their criticisms of, you know, a family life and all that stuff to uh, to say that uh, that it mm -hmm. was, you know, that it was wrong or bourgeois decadence uh, to uh, to drink or sleep around or any of those things, mm -hmm. uh, then, then I'm not aware of those. I'll be fascinated to hear them. Uh, yeah. if, I, uh, if, if you can find them, uh, then I'll well, say, oh, okay, well, that's something they got wrong. But wait, wait, as far, already, as, as, far as there is a, there's another point we want to get okay. to here. Okay. Uh, they uh, So if you want people to, uh, to be able uh, to work less uh, and, uh, and, and have more fun, uh, then uh, it's it seems to me that uh, that for one thing uh, that you know if we if we just look at not the sort of uh, you know getting past capitalism entirely in, in the ways that you know as as somebody who uh, who does have utopian preferences I'd like to but if we even just look at uh, at actually existing social democracy uh, it's uh, it seems like there have been big advances there because of uh, both strong labor unions and uh, social democratic regulations on how much you can make people work, as you know, from your knowledge of the history of the labor movement, mm -hmm. uh, you know, limiting work hours was a major victory of the labor movement. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at other countries, you know, with, uh, with more you know, militant labor unions, with, uh, with more, uh, with more social democratic, uh, you know, regulations, uh, then, uh, then it seems, uh, seems to me that some of them, uh, have you know have given people a lot more free time than we have? So uh, actually, mm -hmm. I, this, this is just a minute. So just indulge me here, mm -hmm. uh, Forrest. If you have that, um, so there's the Super Bowl ad uh, that I was thinking of from uh, 2014. Uh, this is a uh, this is a Cadillac ad from the 2014 Super Bowl. It's uh, it's just a minute long. <laughs> 
we work so hard? For what? For this? For stuff? Other countries they work, they stroll home, they stop by the cafe, they take August off. Off. Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? Because we're crazy, driven, hardworking believers, that's why. Those other countries think we're not. Whatever. We're the right brothers in Spain, Bill Gates, Les Paul, Ali. Were we yeah. not pointed to the moon? That's right. We went up there, you know what we got? Bored. So we left. Got a car up there, left the keys in it. Do you know why? Because we're the only ones going back up there, that's why. Mm -hmm. But I digress. It's pretty simple. You work hard, you create your own luck, and you gotta believe anything is possible. That's for all the stuff. That's the upside of only taking two weeks off in August. That's fun. So yeah, the, uh, the the pitch is is you could be like, hey, a decadent European with all those uh, social democratic regulations, giving people all that time off, mm -hmm. or you could be like us, you know, like Americans, mm -hmm. you know, who, mm -hmm. who like to work and are driven. Uh, although, of course, most people are not uh, given a uh, given an option uh, on that. You know that uh, that the, it's it's not really. I think that uh, that you know that Americans are uh, demanding that they have less time to spend with their families and spend you know more time to uh, to spend uh, spend at work. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that that has something to do with the uh, the balance of power between labor and capital in society. So you see this differently. Okay, so last time I checked, all the countries in Europe that you're a fan of are capitalist countries, right? And that's where their wealth was generated. That's why they can afford these very extravagant social welfare programs is because countries like Sweden and Norway have had very robust, robust capitalist economies, right, to pay for it with. So why they work so much less than Americans do, and that ad is completely correct. It's a very accurate representation of American thinking about work, which if you know anything about me, my book is one extended critique of the Puritan, here it is, Puritan work ethic, right? Which many people know essentially was what this country was founded upon, was Puritanism and in particular its work ethic, which is has a very uneasy relationship with capitalism because capitalism does two things simultaneously, Daniel Bell taught us in Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism. It makes us work like dogs. They hate that part of capitalism that half of the productive side, right? To be a worker or a manager requires tons of work and discipline and obedience to the clock, all these things I hate, but it simultaneously produces all these things that gratify our basest desires. Hedonism comes flying out of capitalism at the very same time that we are made into little drone ants, worker bees, right? So why does it, why do Americans work so much more than than Germans and Dutch and Swedes? Why does that commercial run in the United States? Because I think of our puritanism, not because of our capitalism. There are many other capitalist countries. Some of them are even more purely capitalistic than we are, but they work far fewer hours. It's because we have this ridiculous belief that goes all the way back in our history and you'll see it in every speech by every politician except for Donald Trump. <laughs> no kidding, that work is wonderful and that is what defines this country. Everybody, I ask everyone to go look at Barack Obama's 2008 inaugural address in which that is that is the theme of that speech is how Americans have always adhered to the Puritan work ethic and that's why we're so great. And you know who we included in the list of Americans who adhered to the Puritan work ethic? Slaves, for God's sake. 
I mean, the nerve of these people. But that's what's at the base of American culture, and that's what set it apart from Europeans for centuries. That's why Europeans have made fun of Americans. But, okay. Because we work so much yeah. harder, because we believe it's a good in itself, no matter what we get for it. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I would say that it, uh, it is striking, though, that it hasn't been for centuries uh, that uh, that people have had all that time off, you know, being uh, being mocked in that uh, that commercial. Those are recent developments. Uh, you know, it's it's not uh, you know it's not like social democracy. You know, just sort of comes, you know, emerges out of this, right? This is this is, the reason that people have to work fewer hours is mm -hmm. because of stronger labor unions, stronger government regulations yeah. on how much you can make people, uh, you know, on, on how much you can make people work. Now, yeah. it's true that, as you say, these are still capitalist countries uh, that, uh, that, you know, so uh, most people, you know, work for uh, for regular, you know, externally owned, you know, private uh, private businesses. That's absolutely mm -hmm. true. Um, Wait. But, uh, but I would say that these, that once you have, implemented parts of you know what what I would uh, what I would like uh within that then you get these benefits uh you know like having to have a shorter work week uh, with uh, with no reduction uh in uh, in standard of living in fact I would argue that in uh that uh that in a future society where we went further I think that you know I think that those European social democratic first steps are beautiful first steps uh I think that uh, I think that I would have both ideological and practical reasons to want to not stay there. The ideological reason is the one that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. about the uh, what my preference, if you want to talk that way, for uh, for having a society where most people don't have to uh, to go to work for others and submit themselves to the rule of others with no democratic input. Uh, and uh, that's the ideological reason. The practical reason is that I'm worried that if you have you maintain this basic division of society into a working class and a capitalist class, then those reforms are going to be unstable, that there's, there's, there's going to be a permanent danger of them being, uh, being rolled back. But look, you're right. We do need something to produce all of that wealth to, uh, to be taxed, to, you know, to have everything that I like. Mm -hmm. uh, what I would argue though, is that if we look at actually existing worker cooperatives uh, that, um, that we could, you know, we could have, a private sector that was uh, that was dominated by those, and we could continue to produce that wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, and if the if the downside is that people would have to very occasionally go to meetings, you know, I, I think nobody at Mondragon, uh, you know, is uh, just just for working there, you know, has to go to you know monthly or even you know weekly or even monthly meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that I think that general assembly, you know, where they pick management and uh, and go uh, and approve the. Um, the ag the plan you know for uh, for the year the uh, the operating agreement uh, I believe is uh, is an annual thing uh, but look okay you have to go to a meeting once a year it's <laughs> once a year what kind of socialism is that once a year <laughs> I'm, well, not I'm just I'm just describing what actually exists in the world's largest worker cooperative oh Mondragon you're talking about the current yeah. Mondragon yeah. Oh. I thought you were talking about the 1930s Mondragon, the workers' collectives then, right? That the anarchists and the communists imposed, right? And everyone should go look at the great book. It's called Workers Against Work. I forget the name of the author. But he wrote the history of this in Spain in the 1930s. Once they established these workers' collectives, these cooperatives, once they took over the factories, they became cops, right? The workers themselves became cops. And they actually worked more. And they started talking about the, the glory of labor and the dignity of labor and how, how great it was that they were working. And it became this whole police op action to keep the workers disciplined, just like the capitalist bosses were doing before. Uh, the number of working hours is determined not by, it's not because of labor unions, it's, it's determined by the market. 
The reason oh, we were okay. okay. Wait, wait, let me finish the thought. Let me finish the thought, okay, Ben. Okay. I just okay. got started here. Okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, the, the reason that we work so much more in this country is that Americans are willing to work more than the French are, than the Dutch are, than the Swedes are. So essentially, Americans are always scabbing on others, right? If workers volunteer to work overtime for no pay, which I submit is more common in this country than in other countries, right? Then the worker then say goodbye to your weekend. That's the reason we work more. It has nothing to do with the unions. And in oh, fact, yeah. wait, one, one last thing. Oh, I've written sorry, the history. Sorry. I've actually sure. written the history of this. So this is in my book as well. So the reason we have shorter work hours historically in this country goes back to the 19th century, as all your listeners will know, you'll, and you'll assume it's the, the, the unions and the socialists of the 19th century. It's actually not true at all. What happened in the 19th century was we had all these people who came in from the country, essentially peasants, to work in the first factories, and then immigrants who came from the country and other countries who didn't know what a goddamn clock was, much less a steel factory or a textile mill, right? And they simply did not obey by the dictates of Puritanism. They weren't Puritans either. They weren't good Yankees. So they just didn't work and they didn't like working and they rebelled in all sorts of ways, the kinds of ways that James Scott talks about, right? And the unions in the United States in the 19th century, including Eugene Debs's union, the great socialist leader, and you guys can look this up, they were Puritan to the bone. And they said the argument they made to the governments was, if you continue to work our people 10, 12, 14 hours a day, they will no longer want to work at all. And you will find a revolutionary, not revolutionary, simply rebellious working class who will not work at all. You've got to work these people less in order to make them work well. That's well, why we have shorter hours. That was the argument that was made. That was the yeah, argument that, that, made. That, that and we have a legally mandated 40-hour work week, just like in France, they have a legally mandated 35-hour work week. So sure, that, but where did that come that, from? That strikes, that strikes well. I mean, I think that comes from uh, from political struggle uh, that and that can't be reduced to uh, to uh, to culture. That you know. No, that why do we, so, so why did it happen there and not here? Why do they have that culture and not here? Why do they have a forty-hour work week and not us? Is because they're well, capitalist. Yeah, nice, they're they're capitalist nice. the uh, the six point two percent private sector unionization, and again, I, th I think that the I think that the balance of power between labor and capital and society as a whole uh, has a lot to do with it. Now, if you want to why? say. That we, that, we, that, we, that we wouldn't have that balance of power between labor and capital if not for facts about you know about uh, culture uh, maybe I think that the uh, I think that even if you look at like um, you know Canada which is certainly very 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 far from uh, from any sort of uh, socialist you know socialist utopia uh, but uh, but I think is better in some of these social democratic respects I think that's not very culturally different from the United States. Uh, but uh, but has uh, certainly not from the part of the United States I'm from. I'll say that much. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, but has uh, has achieved some of these social democratic victories. So I think that even if you want to say that there is a feedback loop in both directions between uh, between culture and material conditions, uh, that I I think I'd, I'd be very skeptical of trying to tell a story about this uh, that's all about culture. But if people uh, but right. if people want to see the best case for this. Uh, they should uh, they should check out uh, Thad's work. Uh, the uh, you know so what are the uh, what are the places that uh, that people should start if they uh, if they want to read your stuff? 
one-stop shop, Renegade History of the United States. I've got all the arguments I've laid out there and many more. And then Renegade University, you know, I teach courses on this too, but go to the book, go to Renegade History of the United States to get the full arguments for what I've mentioned here. All right. Fair enough. And uh, I think that this has been, uh, yeah, this has been fun, which I knew it would be. And, uh, and we, we will do this again. So, uh, so this is not. Um... No, no, Ben, it won't happen again unless you bring your cops. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. I will. I will. I will send the uh, the the revolutionary police to your house and, and there you drag them there, and then uh, uh, drag you in front of uh, front of a camera to have another of these conversations. Now you now you understand socialism. I'm glad. Yeah. No. That's that's, that's something. Yes. Yeah. Which I mean, somehow I managed to get you here the first time without it, so I'm actually yeah. optimistic that it might happen anyway. But uh, but uh, thank you for this. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, we will, with or without cops being involved, we will do it again. See you next time. All right. See you then. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. That was Thaddeus Russell, author of uh, Renegade History of uh, the United States. Uh, I am now joined uh, by uh, my friend, Anna Kasparian, uh, from uh, the Young Turks, uh, from uh, from Jacobin's uh, weekend show that uh, that she co-hosts uh, with her friend Nando Vila. How are you doing today, Anna? I'm doing well, Ben. How are you? I am pretty good. Uh, so uh, this is not the uh, the main thing that I want to talk to you uh, about today, but uh, but I, I do have to ask. So uh, so you uh, you just had a chance to interview Noam Chomsky. Hmm. Yeah. It was it was great. I mean, I, we interviewed him. Uh, we did a pre-tape. Uh, I think it was a day or two before the Capitol riots took place. Uh, so we didn't ask him about that. But I really enjoyed the interview. We got a full hour with him, which I think, you know, is the appropriate amount of time to speak with Noam Chomsky. I had interviewed him last year or two years ago, I guess, now that I think about it, geez. Um, and it was only for 20 minutes. And it's just, you can't, you can't get to everything you want to get to in 20 minutes. So it was fantastic. I, I highly recommend everyone check it out um, on Jacobin's YouTube page, uh, youtube.com slash Jacobin Mag. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, that Chomsky probably has a more impressive record of being right about things over the course of a longer period of time than just about anybody else that I can think of uh, off the, uh, off the top of my head, uh, going uh, going back to um, uh, going back to the you know when he was first um, go you know when he first stopped being just the most important linguist in the world and you know started doing the political things that he was doing uh, during the uh, uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, happy uh, happy to see uh, Kale, producer from uh, from Jacobin in the chat there. Uh, you know I think pushing back against some of what Thaddeus was saying in the. Uh, uh, in the interview, perhaps, but um, but yeah. Love so Kale. you said, yeah, yeah. Kale, Kale's Kale. the producer for the weekend show, and he's just he's fantastic. He's just so great. He's such a great person to work with. So I'm really happy to see his comments. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I always I always really enjoy Kale, but um, but yeah. So you said you uh, you interviewed uh, Chomsky uh, before the uh, the Capitol riots, uh, and and so I do want to talk about this. So we we kind of alluded to this a little bit at the very beginning of the show, but this is something, um, I mean, I, I guess I've been sort of struggling to find the right balance here between a couple of things. One of which is just acknowledging that, you know, my crystal ball is certainly on the fritz. Like I, I definitely won't pretend to have seen this coming. This is a, I think this is a crazy escalation, uh, from, uh, from what we've, we've seen before, even though, 
there were kind of there was kind of a miniature version of it in Michigan uh, over. Um, I think back in the spring, maybe uh, that uh, at the at the state capitol in Michigan. But even so, like it, it's something that is is shocking. That like 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 it's it's genuinely bizarre that this happened. Uh, that there was um, not just like a you know right wing riot near the capitol, which would have been certainly big news in itself, but that that it happened you know in the capitol. That there were people. Uh, some of the reports that came out from it that there were there were congressmen who were like breaking apart pieces of furniture, you know, you know, in case uh, in case they needed uh, needed to have clubs. So so this is a deeply strange thing that that happened, uh, and and a, and a really disturbing thing that happened, and and something we absolutely uh, don't want to minimize, which which is a mistake. I think some people uh, have uh, have made, uh, but I think it's also important to not like not treat it as something that like, I think the worst case scenario from what, what, what would happen on Wednesday was not that like, you know, democracy would have been overthrown and, you know, we would have, you know, like, like, I don't, I don't think there's any way that that would, that would have been the outcome, which I think might be an important thing to clarify because of some of what might be coming down the pike, you know, in, in response to it. Uh, but I'm not sure I have all the answers here. Like, like, I don't, you know, I don't know exactly. Uh, and I think even, even looking at like the ways that people have been struggling to find the right language to describe, you know, what happened, right. Is this mm-hmm. a coup? Is it a riot? Is it something in between? Uh, you know, is it an insurrection, which is a word that you don't hear a lot, but you know, as has, I've been hearing everywhere, you know, for, uh, for the last week, I think probably reflect people trying to find that balance. So where do you come down on all of that? Well, I mean, I definitely uh, think what happened is incredibly serious, and uh, I have been turned off by some of the discourse that I've seen among, you know, some more prominent figures on the left that I typically agree with on pretty much everything. Uh, But like this effort to kind of minimize it, and and more importantly, uh, I'm seeing some people even ridicule and criticize uh, lawmakers like AOC, for instance, um, who shared with uh, the country just how terrifying it was and how much she felt that her own life was at risk. And to be sure, I mean, you have photos of mm-hmm. these uh, right-wing zealots uh, with, uh, you know, the uh, someone told me not to call them zip ties because it, it even minimizes what it is, but, you know, those flexi cuffs, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, with the intention of holding members of Congress right. hostage. Like, Let's not minimize it and understand that what happened was in fact serious. Also, I, I would just urge a little bit of consistency because uh, for all of the rhetoric that I've seen and heard regarding um, failed coup attempts in Venezuela, and to be sure they were failed coup attempts, mm. um, this was also a failed attempt to uh, essentially throw out a, a democratic process, a democratically elected, um, you know, outcome. And I think that that's an issue. I think that the intentions of what they wanted to do uh, matters. Uh, I agree with you that the uh, probability or possibility of an actual successful coup is unlikely, but that doesn't change the fact that they were intending <laughs> on essentially ensuring that uh, someone who was not democratically elected, um, you know, Donald Trump, serves another term and who knows, maybe even uh, serves indefinitely as, as, as president. And that's just beyond horrendous behavior that was egged on and encouraged 
not just by right-wing media, which is an issue, uh, but it was encouraged. And now some new reporting indicates was even organized by Republican lawmakers. And that is a problem. That is a huge problem that should be dealt with appropriately. Now, on the other hand, though, uh, I, I totally hear what you're saying about striking a balance, because the last thing we need is to, uh, you know, support any type of like hyperbolic rhetoric that can allow for lawmakers to beef up uh, an already already militarized, uh, you know, security state to something even more uh, egregious, right? Like, I don't think we need additional national security laws that focus on white supremacists. I think that that would be disastrous. We clearly already have too many resources pumped into policing and the security state as it is. The real question here, though, is why is it that when it comes to certain protesters like Black Lives Matter, uh, police departments will rain terror on the protesters. But when it comes to what happened uh, last week with the, the Capitol Hill riots, seems like in, in a lot of cases, uh, police just let it happen, right? right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because we're not even talking, I think, um, you know, there were a lot of people at the original rally. I think there were tens of thousands of people, you know, at, at the original rally at the, at, the, at the White House. And a lot of those walked over to the Capitol. Uh, but I think the actual number of people inside the Capitol was, I've seen people say several hundred. I've seen people say maybe as much as a couple thousand. Uh, but there, there are probably as many Capitol cops as that, right? Like that, that that's not like the, the actual... Um, they should have been able to stop this. It shouldn't have been any problem uh, to uh, to stop this, uh, and and it and I think that's probably the most objectively. I mean, in, like maybe there will be other things that come out in terms of what you're talking about. You know, the the sort of role of you know Republican lawmakers certainly in organizing the initial rally, maybe and you know maybe in some of the things that happen after that. Uh, but as far as the things that we know right now, I think the most objectively shocking part. Is that the uh, the Capitol cops uh, let it happen, and uh, and and I think we know that they. I mean, I mean, obviously there were people who were taking selfies uh, with, uh, uh, you know, with with the the mob that you know that was that was coming into uh, to the Capitol, and this is something they stop people from doing this all the time. Like this is this is a routine right. thing that they do. Like I like in you know two thousand and seven there were anti-war, you know, Iraq veterans, uh, you know, who, who were trying to go into, uh, go into the Capitol, you know, to, uh, to protest. And you can see the pictures of, you know, of the cops like lining up like a couple deep to, you know, to stop them from, uh, from doing this. So I, I think that you can say, and this is actually important because of what you're talking about, uh, about calls for new, you know, uh, laws about domestic terrorism, uh, that that would be like I mean, given how bad what we already have in the books are, I can't even imagine, you know, what that you know what that would look like. And actually, uh, you know, I mean, it's funny you know you mentioned people who have maybe, you know, overdosed on a certain kind of online contrarianism. You know, getting um, you know mocking AOC for uh, for you know ex expressing that you know people were afraid that the uh, that members of of this mob would uh, would come in and kill them. Uh, but to her credit, I think, you know, I think Forrest, we have that tweet uh, that, you know, she has she has struck, uh, you know, I think exactly uh, the uh, the right uh, the right note here 
Uh, so, mm-hmm. uh, so this is uh, she. So, okay, so you people might not be able to see it on there, but in the uh, the, the quoted tweets from Norman Ormstein uh, says the House must immediately uh, uh, pass a domestic terrorism statute with the focus on white supremacist terrorism, and uh, Senate to uh, to uh, to the Senate. Uh, and uh, AOC in the tweet says, I disagree. Our problem on Wednesday uh, wasn't that there weren't enough laws, resources, or intelligence. Uh, we had them and they were not used. So I think, right. yeah, so, th- so this is this is the distinction, right? That you, you don't have to say, we need to beef up the policing powers of the state. You could just say, why weren't these used in the normal way that they're used? Exactly. I mean, when you really think about the fact that uh, these right-wingers had been planning this for weeks in plain sight on, on parlor. Uh, I mean, you don't even really need uh, like highly trained uh, national security intelligence experts to, to figure out what was going on. And I mean, sure. You might see those posts on parlor and think, are they serious? They're probably just, you know, they're probably just joking around, right. Giving them the benefit of the doubt, which I personally, during the Trump era, would not do. But nonetheless, like just to be safe, let's prepare. And to be sure, we know now that the uh, Pentagon reached out to Capitol Police and um, asked them if they uh, needed additional assistance in the form of National Guards, you know, to to kind of beef up security on that day. And they, for some reason, uh, decided to reject that. And so there was a, a, a real breakdown in in the planning. And, and I, I think that it was an intentional breakdown. Um, obviously I'm, uh, speculating, uh, but I think we all have good reason to think that. And so there should be an investigation into why, first of all, this double standard exists where, you know, over the summer, uh, we saw, you know, mass protests throughout the country. Um, and there was no shortage of policing or surveillance or security when it come came to that. Uh, but when it came to, uh, these, insurrectionists, these rioters, uh, to see the Capitol Police take selfies with them was just discouraging, demoralizing. To see how emboldened these people were to just kind of like roam throughout the Capitol building uh, without hiding their identities. I mean, they genuinely did not expect to suffer any consequences for this. They felt entitled to be there. Uh, They felt entitled not only to be there, but to uh, like vandalize property uh, steal mail from Nancy Pelosi's office and then talk about it to the media. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's, I think that it's okay for the left to acknowledge that what happened was serious while also much like AOC simultaneously rejecting efforts to beef up the security state more than it already is. Like we don't need to do that. We can fight back and push back against those efforts. Uh, but I really genuinely think that messaging is important. And Mm -hmm. when people see the left, especially the online left, make fun of lawmakers for being afraid, minimize what actually took place. I really do think that it turns people off to potentially, you know, being part of a broader coalition led by the left. Uh, So I'm just thinking about the bigger picture here and someone who considers herself as part of the left. Like I was grossed out by a lot of what I saw online. Um, So I would just say like, there's no need to be hyperbolic. Uh, I'm not encouraging that that's for sure. But I certainly do think that it's uh, pretty destructive 
uh, to the left to make it appear as if like anyone is minimizing it or thinking that this is nothing more than a joke. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I, I wonder like when people, uh, you know, when people do that, right, they go beyond saying the thing that they, they should say, which is that this is not like the, um, you know, the level of threat that was posed by what happened isn't something that could only be prevented from happening again by passing a bunch of new laws and making it easier to spy on people and everything. Uh, that it, it would have been actually extremely easy, given what we already have, to uh, to stop it, which is part of what's scandalous about it. Whether you think that there was some, um, you know, whatever level of intention you think it is, like, and, and, and honestly, it seems like it could even just be that uh, certainly a lot of rank and file capital cops, people were taking selfies, uh, and uh, and maybe even some, you know, decision makers, you know, turning down the National Guard basically see MAGA protesters as their kind of people. So they're reluctant to crack down on them. Like, like that's all it could take, but you know, that that's enough, right. In, in mm -hmm. context that that's enough to, uh, to get it done. Uh, so that you could say, okay, like if you go beyond just making that point to saying, Oh, you know, no big deal, nothing to see here. Uh, I, I have, I have seen, um, and I have seen some of those takes uh, there, there are people who uh, I'm not going to name any names because this is this is somebody I even generally like, you know, who uh, who said that this was like, you know, this looked more, you know, this, this was uh, like a Black Friday, you know, in Kentucky, or I, I think was the phrase they used, you know, and it's like, no, uh, you know, we, we are talking about uh, several hundred people, um, you know, fighting with the Capitol Police at certain points, uh, you know, smash, you know, smashing their way uh, into uh, into the Capitol, uh you know, in uh, at least one case, you know, the famous picture of the guy with the uh, the zip ties, uh, there seemed to be a clear intention to uh, to take hostages. This is really serious, uh, and it's and it's really bad. And you know, I think whatever, however you come down in places in terms of the debates about okay, what do you call it, or how do we how should we think about this? You know, I think everybody should be able to start with that baseline if it's really serious and it's really bad. But so I, I guess what I'm wondering and what I want your take on is what's going on with with people who who don't think that because it seems like one thing that might be a bigger issue here is that right now like a lot of the left is in a is in this kind of weird place because in 2016 and 2020 when Bernie ran for president those first two times those two times or first two times he's not gonna run for president again you'd have to have you know there have to be like some amazing anti-aging breakthrough or something so uh, those two which is part of the problem actually but you know those two times he ran for president and everything that happened because he ran for president those two times like the um you know the rise of DSA you know the squad getting elected to Congress all of that stuff right so all of that that whole arc, you know, from, from like 2016 to 2020, like built up the left, you know, this kind of left that didn't really exist before then. Uh, but then now I think a lot of people are kind of panicking because um, Bernie lost the second time. Uh, it seems very likely there's not going to be a third time. Um, you know, Joe Biden is, uh, is going to be president now. Uh, and so it seems like, I think there's this kind of rational core maybe where people are worried that, were that like you're just going to get sort of sucked in to just uh, to just regular liberalism, you know, because that's going to be the only game in town that's that's sort of left at this point. And so I think maybe some of that contrarianism comes out of that. That you know people people just want to say, okay, 
I want to really, really differentiate myself from just like regular shitty, you know, MSNBC liberals, which, which fair enough, but it seems like, and this is not the only recent example of this, uh, some of that's coming out in really unhelpful ways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, everyone sees it. And and I think, I, I, I love what Matt Chrisman has to say about uh, some of the discourse that takes place on Twitter, for instance, um, because I think that he's correct in pointing out just like the competitive nature of uh, the l- members of the left wanting to outdo one another, uh, you know, go further and further. I think he even, I don't remember if it was him or someone else who even compared it uh, to like watching pornography, for instance, right? Um, you become desensitized to it and then you need something a little more extreme each time. Um, and I really like that analogy because I feel like uh there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of aimlessness right now among the left. Uh, it's leaderless at the, at, at the moment. And so I think what happens is there's this like culture online where uh, voices on the left are like trying to outdo one another and like really prove their uh, leftist credentials. And it's just stupid. And I don't really like engaging in that kind of stuff because what we really want to do more than anything is have thoughtful conversations about solutions. Mm. And that's really missing right now because what we should be discussing on the left in response to the riots that took place is, okay, we have established what we don't want, which is the direction that liberals are going in with wanting um, you know, more of a police state. I don't want that. So what do we want to you know, hold uh, people in positions of power accountable for egging this on or encouraging this? Those are the kinds of conversations we should be having instead of like ridiculing AOC for genuinely being afraid for her life. Yeah. Um, and, and especially if we are worried that there is going to be like some like terrible new round of like war on terror in, in response to this, uh, then the last thing that we should that we should be doing is uh, is minimizing. I saw Ryan Grimm make this point uh, that um, uh, in response to uh, to something that you know that Michael Tracy you know said. I, I think actually on exactly what you're saying about the uh, you know sort of mocking you know those those concerns that look if if you if you're worried that that stuff's coming down the pike and you don't and you want to uh, convince as many people as possible. Uh, that it should be opposed. The last thing you want to do is give them the impression that people who are opposed to that, uh, you know, just, you know, don't think that this stuff is serious or, you know, are, are sort of mocking concerns about it. Cause, cause that's, I mean, that's going to be massively discrediting to any attempt to say, no, 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 we don't need and don't want any kind of new security laws. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, it people lose credibility when they minimize uh, what happened. And I I think that's just not the right way to go about it. And again, like pushing back against the police state makes all the sense in the world. I'm I'm in favor of that. Uh, But the second half of that discussion is, okay, then what are the solutions, right? And so that was something that Nando and I were talking about and kind of debating um, during the latest episode of Weekends for Jacobin. And I've been thinking about it a lot ever since because I, I... I want solutions. Mm. I don't want to just say this is really bad and then just kind of leave it at that. Um, But I mean, dark money played a huge role in the organizing effort to get these people to DC. 
Um, so we need to have a real discussion about, you know, doing something, not just about money and politics, but like, how about we start with dark money? Yeah. Uh, because there are all these nefarious figures behind the scenes um, who have uh, provided the resources necessary to get these people to the nation's capital. Uh, why don't we discuss uh, ways in which we can not only investigate Republican members of Congress who have allegedly played a role in organizing this, um, but like we should hold them accountable, first of all, because as we've experienced over the last few decades, the Republican Party has become more and more ballsy with what they're willing to do in order to get what they want. And it's because they have gone unchecked. The Democratic Party um, is incredibly weak in holding them accountable. In fact, even after these riots took place, you have like Joe Biden saying like, I don't know, I really want to do this impeachment thing. Yeah, yeah. How about like anything that we can do to send a clear sign that this is not okay, not just for Trump, but The Intercept today. Uh, Ida Chavez um, and Ryan Grimm reported on um, this guy named Ali Alexander, who was like front and center of planning all of the stuff that took place. Uh, he outed three Republican lawmakers, uh, and I want to name them by name because he said mm -hmm. that they took an active role in organizing this. So Representatives Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, and Mo Brooks, that, and it's not just like, oh, organizing this Stop the Steal rally for Trump, but the effort in the Capitol building. Like, I don't know how true that is. This is an this is an allegation by someone who was front and center with organizing it. He's saying that these Republican lawmakers are involved. So can we investigate that? Can we actually do a genuine investigation? And if they are... At, if they were really involved in, in organizing this and encouraging people to breach the Capitol building. Well, 14th Amendment, 14th Amendment, Section 3. Uh, this is uh, this is sedition. Like you they know they know it's not like they're stupid. These Republican lawmakers know that the Trump campaign failed in every single court battle. Uh, they failed to provide a shred of evidence of widespread voter fraud, but they encouraged this anyway. They engaged in this anyway. In the case of Senator Josh Hawley, specifically for his own political career uh, and to pander to Trump's base because he's eyeing a 2024 presidential run. Um, we live in a society that encourages us to engage in the worst behavior for personal benefits and, and personal profit. We see it in politics. Uh, we see it in the media, including left media, which grosses me out beyond words. And at the end of the day, like we need to call that out because while the incentives are there, while the, uh, you know, financial structures are in place to like push us in the wrong direction and do, uh, you know, basically misinform people or to engage in, you know, these political stunts that actually damage the country. Um, we just got to call it out and call it what it is. Otherwise, they're just going to continue getting ballsier and ballsier, not because they genuinely believe in what they're doing, but specifically because they see it as advantageous for their own careers and their own profits. Yeah, right. Which is certainly, I think the, uh, the case, uh, in Howley's case that, uh, that he, um, like this is this is something um slight tangent we're going to get back in a minute but like this is something that drives me crazy that you know i think even people who should know much better would give people like josh Hawley credit for you know it's like oh they're populists they 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 want to you know they're uh uh like you know they're like they're just like they're just regular Reaganite republicans with like better pr 
uh, you know, Josh Howley is against raising the minimum wage. He's against Medicare for all. He's against like, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I'm pretty sure that if you do, that if somebody actually asked him about it, he'd be against like laws against, you know, sending little kids into working coal mines. Uh, you know, he totally. doesn't actually have any economic populist positions on absolutely anything, you know, but he knows that he can mouth some of the right words sometimes. And, uh, and certainly nobody in mainstream media is, is really that interested in, um, in, uh, in pointing out, you know, those, those contradictions. Uh, but since you did mention, uh, and this is the other thing I wanted to, uh, to get to, since you did mention left media and all of that, uh, it is, um, it is important, I think, to, uh, to talk about this, uh, that we've just kind of come out of, and, and the reason to this month long uh, ordeal uh, for, for anybody who follows left media of uh, people, you know, what kind of at some points like really seemed to me like this unhinged hate fest uh, against, uh, against AOC, against, uh, you know, Mark Pocan, uh, and against, uh, anybody who, who defended any of those, uh, any of those figures, uh, that was, um, around, that was about, uh, their, their not being willing to, to sign on to, uh, this force the vote tactic. And the reason that I bring that up isn't that I particularly want to, like rehash the like underlying merits of that particular tactic for the 10,000th time, you know, I'd, I'd actually be pretty happy uh, to, uh, to never have to talk about that again. But uh, if, if people want to know what I think, I wrote an article in Jacobin, uh, you know, if, if, if people want to know what you think, I think you just, they can do a YouTube search uh, at a cast and force the vote and, and, and they can find out. Uh, but uh, and it's it's all it's not even that you know I, I necessarily want to um, talk badly about any particular person who might disagree, although God knows some of them deserve it. Uh, but uh, but but I, I am interested in what this says about the state of the left right now that that could happen that we could get this like we we, we could get weeks and weeks of people of so many people. And I understand that it's, this is in a relatively limited sphere. You know, we're really talking about the online. Thank left. God, and, by the way. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, online left and left media uh, could be just totally consumed in this idea that um, like people were literally like circulating lists of, you know, people who hadn't, uh, you know, who weren't supporting it. Uh, and, and the idea, like what gets me about this is not so much whether you think that this particular like tactical idea makes sense or not. I don't, right. I've, I've talked about that many times, but whatever. I mean, like if, if somebody says, look, I have this like really inside baseball wonky idea for this like parliamentary tactic, you know, that the, uh, that the squad could use gets Pelosi and it doesn't make sense to me, then whatever. That's like a very minor disagreement among, among close allies uh, about tactics what gets me about this is that people were that ready that quickly to just completely write each other off about this, to say that anybody who, who wasn't taking, you know, what they viewed as the right position on this like extremely minor tactical debate uh, was a um, fucking sellout, you know, to, uh, to, to quote one of the main people, you know, led, led this charge and, and what's going on there. Like, how is it that we're at a point where where this can happen that it's like that easier 
easy to get people to just shred into each other about this. Well, I mean, I think it's it's worth questioning what the true motivations were in the first place. I think that there are, and this is, by the way, this is totally outside of what the proposal was, what the strategy was. I think that having a, a thoughtful debate about it is great. But when I first saw this bubbling up on Twitter, for instance, I, my first statement was about the person who proposed it, not yeah. because I decided like, oh, I'm going to be petty about this. And I'm like jealous that he proposed something. And I did. No, no. It was because I have experience with this person and I don't trust that it was really about Medicare for all. Well, if not for uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, nothing, if nothing else, Jimmy Dore, you know, the person we're, we're, we're talking about, I said I didn't want to make it about people, but like I, everybody knows that much, right? They have a, uh, so uh, is somebody, I, I think there are good reasons and this is compatible with thinking that he's right. Like lots of people that I, I deeply respect, you know, thought that he was right. Uh, Cornell West thought so. I love Cornell West, right? So um, the, uh, but uh, I think in, in his case, you know, you could, you could still think that he's right and think this, but I think there are pretty good reasons to suspect that uh, this is not in just about how committed he was to Medicare for all. Among other things, the fact that he supported a candidate in the primary who, who, who did like pretty much the same thing that people like Kamala Harris and, you know, Pete Buttigieg uh, did and had this sort of triangulating like halfway in between Medicare for all and not, you know, public option-y thing. And, uh, and he did not, right, say that uh, Tulsi Gabbard was a fucking sellout for saying that. He kind of ran interference for her and said, well, I don't exactly agree, but there's, there's some really good things about this. And, and it's very hard for me to wrap my mind around how he could take that position then and also think that people who are hardcore supporters of Medicare for All, who have made that the center of their politics for years, uh, are terrible sellouts for not going along with his specific suggestion about how to do like a symbolic kind of theatrical uh, stunt that would supposedly advance it. Right. I, I just look, I, I think that it's worth being skeptical of people who spend the majority of their time delegitimizing and dividing the left. I think it's worth questioning what the motivations are. I think it's worth being skeptical uh, about what the majority of, you know, Jimmy Dore's content is dedicated to. I mean, it, it devolved to the point where now Humanist Report is somehow some sort of shill. I don't even know what that was about, but I don't really care. Um, <laughs> I, Humanist, by the way, Mike Figueredo is fantastic. Yeah. And I see, I see these people, I see you, I see David Dole, Mike Figueredo, whoever. You guys are an important part of getting the word out about our ideas, what we can do to strategize. Uh, I, I mean, the idea of anyone else yelling and screaming about how the DSA owes them something, how the DSA needs to cater to them. I mean, it was, ju it's just the most mind boggling thing. And, you know, one thing that I would also encourage people to do if they find themselves, you know, on the receiving end of, you know, Jimmy Dore's temper tantrums. When his uh, supporters start attacking you and harassing you and spamming you, just click on their, click on their accounts and, and 
try to question what their political ideology really is, right? Because um, many of those accounts I clicked on were either uh, sock puppet accounts or just full-blown Trump supporters. And I think it's important to build a broad coalition because I don't think that every single Trump supporter is a lost mm. cause. I do yeah. think that there are people in this country who, um, you know, are persuadable. And so I'm not going to write them all off. Uh, but I do question the tactic of focusing all his energy on delegitimizing uh, organizers, uh, DSA, uh, left-wing voices in the media. I mean, we're such a small group as it is. And yeah. it's so important for us to be open-minded with one another and have, you know, have these debates. I like these debates. I think it's important to debate ideas because we're not always going to agree on strategy, but the mutual respect is important. And, uh, you know, the fact that he encouraged everything to just kind of devolve into accusations of being corporate shills and being funded by like NATO, which I don't, does NATO do that? Like, does NATO fund people? Like, it's just <laughs> absurd stuff. And not, yeah, not as far, not as far as I know, uh, which, which is also, um, yeah, I, I remember at one point in this, you know, uh, that it was the big gotcha was that you'd interviewed uh, Madeline Albright when, like, uh, like. So that was, it was either two years. I, so I went to the Munich security conference twice, which by the way, YouTube wanted to have a presence there. So they had some of their like uh, top YouTube personalities go and do interviews, right? And so yeah. like the idea, like I wasn't hired by the Munich Security Conference to do it. There were journalists there. There was media there covering the conference as there is with every other conference in the world. Um, and YouTube wanted to have a presence. So they reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested. And so I did it two years in a row. And I have to say, like, uh, the upper hand that I usually have in these kinds of interviews is people don't know who I am. They just don't. I mean, we're talking about politicians, world leaders. And I love that they don't know who I am because typically they'll see me and they'll see like a young woman and they'll underestimate me and think I don't know anything. And then I can ask them the questions that I want to ask. Right. Madeline Albright, I don't know if it's to her credit, knew exactly who I was. And the second she saw me, she was... She was super spicy. Like, what are you going to ask me? Like that kind of like confrontational yeah. tone. And like, I had been preparing for the interview, really looking forward to it because I wanted to ask her about our relationship with Saudi Arabia and like the double standards when it comes to human, you know, just the excuse that yeah. we hear from the government regarding like these interventionist wars and, oh, it's a human rights crisis. And that's why we're doing it. But she threw me off because I just didn't expect it. And, um, mm. I was so like, I think in the back of my mind, I just really wanted her to answer my questions. And so I started the interview. The opening line was, it's an honor to speak with you. And I remember yeah. as I said it, I cringed, but it was just to like kind of ease her into the interview so I could ask what I wanted and get an answer. Yeah, which well, was stuff like that, the, uh, the, the Saudi Arabia double standard and, and, and all of that, which I would think if NATO was paying you to, uh, to do it, they would have like, <laughs> given you better instructions about what to ask about. Totally. Uh, totally. That would have benefited them less. And and look, I, I do think that we can make a, a distinction, you know, because obviously you're right that, um, you know, like all 71 million or whatever it was, you know, people who voted for uh, for Trump the uh, the second time aren't uh, aren't lost causes. I mean, you know, God, we better hope not, right? But, uh, 
But that said, if somebody is currently a, a Trump supporter, uh, then then probably they are not yet yet in a place where they have the best interests uh, of the democratic socialist left in mind. I mean, that, that just, that just seems pretty obvious. Um, and so, you know, when you, when you get these people and, you know, it's not that it's a crime necessarily even that, you know, to have, um, people like that in, in your audience, but presumably the, the goal, right. You know, if, if they are right, then what you would hope for is that you're, you're winning them over. Uh, and, and what I guess disturbed me the most about that, uh, all of it. And I know a lot of people are going to hear this as tone policing, but that's really seriously not the point. It's not about tone. It's not about how polite or rude you are when you're saying it, uh, is that who is the fight being picked with, right? Like what, what's mm-hmm. the actual fight that we're talking about? Because if you're picking a fight with Nancy Pelosi over Medicare for all, then, you know, like, yeah. Have at it. <laughs> Have at it, please. Right. You know, I love that. Um, but even though like there was a lot of talk about Nancy Pelosi because the theoretical, you know, tactic that was being suggested, you know, was about her. Uh, that's not actually who the fight was picked with, right? Nobody was, uh, nobody was even really like uh, doing much of anything that was directed at, uh, at Nancy Pelosi. You know, no, nobody was tweeting at Nancy Pelosi nobody was, you know, sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office, you know, like whatever, like none of that stuff uh, was, was happening. Uh, instead, it was being uh, directed at AOC. And of course, it's certainly true. Look, it's the point here is not that like AOC is infallible and there are no legitimate criticisms of her. Of course, I mean, she's, she's a politician. You know, there are there are legitimate criticisms. I've made some of them sometimes. I, I, I think there's there's lots of stuff that you could say about, you know, what's, um, you know, like things that she should have done differently, all that stuff. And it's not even about like sure pressure politicians. Every politician, even you know, even the ones who are who are closest to you, but th- there is a more basic thing here, right? Which is when when Dora was saying things like um, she's standing between you and healthcare. The point is not that it's rude. The point is not even that it's unfair to AOC. It certainly is, but that's not the the point that I care about uh, the most. The the point that I care about about the most is that it's just really weirdly counterproductive because mm-hmm. like the reason that we don't have healthcare, what's standing between you and healthcare is the fact that we don't have about 200 more AOCs in Congress right now. Totally. So, yeah. Like, yeah. I, you know, it was interesting because the messaging would change depending on what the feedback and critique was toward the strategy. Uh, at first it was, no, no, we know, we know that this isn't, even if they bring it to the floor for a vote, we know it's not going to pass. Uh, but the point is to get these people, these lawmakers on the record, uh, rejecting Medicare for all so we can primary them and hold them accountable. Um, now as I mean, you've, you've already covered this. I've already covered this as we know it would have failed in the Senate, which actually provides quite a bit of cover for Democrats who aren't being sincere to vote in favor of it. Um, while appearing to support it, when in reality they know it's going to fail in the Senate, they have nothing to lose. Um, But then the messaging would change to AOC is standing between you and your health care. But how does that make sense when you just acknowledged, you literally just acknowledged that it's not going to pass, you know it's not going to pass, and this is meant to be uh, political theater and also to hold uh, Democratic lawmakers accountable. AOC is not the one standing between us and our health care. Uh, right. Our entire 
system of government and, and right. the, the corporate money that's injected into these congressional races, that's a huge problem. Uh, but, you know, it's not a sexy topic. It's not right. like some uh, attention-grabbing, clickbaity topic uh, to talk about. And, like, the, everything that went down – and, by the way, like, again – I, I don't I don't care about tone policing. I work for Jenk Uger and I get a little salty on the show too. I, I don't care about tone policing at all. I care about the substance of what's being said. I care about the unfair accusations that are being thrown in the direction of lawmakers that we have some influence over. And so when you start attacking them viciously like that, it's very easy for them to write you off. The last thing I want to do is push progressive lawmakers away from the left movement um, because we do need them. We need more of them, as you mentioned. And so uh, I, I think that it, politics is about carrots and sticks, right. right? And so Jimmy Dore didn't use a stick. Jimmy Dore used like IEDs and he tried to blow up uh, the little power that progressive lawmakers have and the the amount of like influence that we have over them. Because if you're associated with that type of demonizing and, you know, uh, crazy hyperbolic rhetoric, it's easy for these lawmakers to write you off as people who aren't serious, who aren't credible. And that's the last thing that you would want. Right. Um, and so, and, and then also I'm sure you were frustrated with this as well, just like this unwillingness to be honest about what the actual critiques were and the unwillingness to address the actual critiques, uh, to use, you know, these straw man arguments. Yeah, uh, if, if you to, don't, uh, you know, that everybody who's against it is just saying now is not the time to fight for Medicare for all, which nobody was saying. Yeah, was no, saying ab that. yeah, absolutely. And and again, uh, the like the issue, you know, is not so much like, oh, you know, he's he's being mean, you know, to uh, to this this congresswoman. The uh, the issue is. Uh, like what's what's the strategy here? And it, and it seems like if this did have more leverage, in fact, I, as you said earlier, I've, I, I'm very comforted by the thought that this was largely limited to online and you know left media spaces, uh, because if this did have a lot of purchase out in the wider world, if uh, if there were if like most people uh, who were you know who identified with a sort of Bernieish you know left agenda out in the wider world believed this, that, uh, that, uh, that the squad was the fraud squad, you know, because they weren't going along with this, you know, which was like a trending hashtag at, at one point in all of this, then the effect of that would be to tell like the people, the, the base of support of those politicians that there's no reason to support them anymore, that the, uh, that it's, it's, uh, that, um, that it's actually, there's no reason to bother about getting excited about, or, you know, to, uh, to that it's, it's just no longer important to support them against the democratic establishment because there just wasn't enough of a difference for that to matter. And that seems insanely counterproductive that if you, if you want, um, I mean, right now we have, you know, the number of members of the squad can still, even after this election, you know, be counted on your fingers, uh, and uh, even the number of people who are Medicare for all co-sponsors, and and I do agree with you know Jimmy Dore that um, some of them are are I'm sure some of them are very soft yes votes who who would get cold feet if they thought that it was actually even going to pass the House. Never mind, like you said, you know, make it to the Senate. Uh, I'm not sure why, like exposing 
soft yes votes should actually be a priority right now, as opposed to uh, dramatically expanding the number of those votes and then also building the kind of movement that could effectively, like what you'd want is enough people who are like hardcore AOC types that you could get within spitting distance of actually passing it and then build up enough of a grassroots movement that you could effectively pressure the soft yes votes to, to stick to their guns when, when it came to it, that would, you know, be what would make sense to me anyway. But then like, yeah, yeah. Like the idea that you tell people this, that, Oh, this is the fraud squad. You know, there's really, there's really no important reason to support, you know, Bernie crap politicians like this. Like that is a gift to Nancy Pelosi because mm-hmm. if, because because if the if people really buy it right if they if they really think that uh, that oh there's actually no difference between these politicians and the Democratic establishment then why would you support them you know why would you support other primary challengers you know who who are going to be aligned with them who are going to be similar to them and and that just seems like a really basic point but then you think why is it and again not talking about what whether like the tactic was a good tactic or not. Uh, you know, I don't think so. I don't think it was, but you know, but that's, that's a, that's a debate that again, I'm very happy to have, like, have that just as like a friendly debate, you know, among people who basically agree with each other, but you know, might have different ideas about tactics. But like, the thing that gets me is that we're in a place, you know, post Bernie, all that stuff, where you could have Sure, it's a small minority, I'm sure, of the base of these politicians. It's mostly concentrated online and left media spaces. But still, right, like a lot of uh, of the, the most hardcore supporters uh, of, um, you know, people who had been Bernie supporters, et cetera, like a lot of the most, you know, most hardcore group, people who are very online, uh, who are, are – willing to just orient everything totally around this for a month. And that seems like all I can think, and and I want you to take out this, all I can think is that we just don't have like a big obvious thing to rally around right now. The way that the way that the Bernie campaign was a big obvious thing for the left to rally around right now. So anything that seemed like that felt like, a like something that was big and dramatic that everybody could rally around. Uh, a lot of people were were willing to do it. And in fact, like super hostile when anybody uh, when anybody brought up any problems with it because I think they were sort of relieved and happy to uh, to have something to rally around. So I guess the question is just how are like I'm sure people will forget about force the vote. Like I'm sure that like by like you know two months from now most people will like barely remember that this is the thing that exists because that's how hashtag activism works that, you know, but like right. everybody has the memory of a goldfish about this. But so I guess I'm not worried about that, but I am worried that we're going to keep doing this because like we, we, we don't, yeah, the, the same problem isn't going anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think your analysis on that is right. I mean, I think what, and I don't begrudge, well-meaning people who feel lost and angry and, and, you know, don't know where to direct their energy, uh, to be sure organizing is a difficult process that takes time. And so when you see so many people suffering, uh, during this pandemic, when you notice that there isn't like a, a robust effort by our lawmakers to provide healthcare to Americans during this 
time of crisis, yeah, it's it's infuriating. And what Force the Vote did was provide like this heated blanket on a super cold winter morning, right? Right. It was just comforting for some people. And I get that. And I don't begrudge them for, for wanting to kind of latch onto something, even if some of them, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not talking about public figures here. I'm talking about, uh, you know, people who genuinely want these policies passed, um, you know, latching onto this and, and really, really, uh, refusing to listen to any critique of it. It is what it is. I'm, I'm not upset about that. But I do think, I do think that, you know, I just think that there's like this lack of, well, we live in a society that has conditioned us to expect instant gratification. So I think that's an issue. Um, People are just conditioned that way. And so they want quick solutions, but there are no shortcuts, especially when it comes to really changing this entire political system in a way that represents the best interests of workers as opposed to the elites. Um, and w- the most, I, look, you can call me whatever bad name you want. I mean, I've been doing this for 14 years. I've been called every bad name. I've been accused of all sorts of insane things. This isn't about me. But what was really ho- like horrifying to experience and witness was the insane cruelty toward organizers and members of the DSA. I mean, it is such a thankless job already to do what they're doing. And it's a difficult job to do what they're doing. It's an unpaid job to do what they're doing, but they do it anyway because they understand, you know, based on historical events, the only way you get what you want is through this organizing, through these pressure campaigns. Uh, You're not going to get it done through boycotts or hashtag activism, none of that works. It's the, it's the people on the ground who are doing the hard work and it can be demoralizing. And I just, I really hope none of them were discouraged or became discouraged or demoralized based on, um, the attacks that they had to deal with during that whole situation. Um, I worried about them, honestly, because I want them to keep fighting. I want them to keep organizing. I want DSA's numbers to continue increasing. Um, and it's not, and not just DSA, any, anyone who's yeah. part of, you know, this project, uh, people who do not get validated it, yeah, you know, yeah, on a daily yeah. basis. So. Yeah. National Nurses United, uh, the, exactly. which, which have probably done more than any other single organization to advance Medicare for all. Uh, and, um, the uh yeah justice democrats you know recruiting you know primary challengers for democrats who actually are against you know medicare for all who, who are vulnerable to that you know in uh, in districts where that's true people who are involved in uh, labor unions you know who, who can be uh who can help to uh that aren't necessarily you know uh, prioritizing medicare for all right now who can help make that happen uh and and i guess the like the thing that that bothers me more about this than um, than even like what you anybody individual person might think is the best way of of organizing this kind of effort is the not seeing the distinction between what you're talking about people who are doing that thankless job of uh, of organizing and and people who who do what you and I and Jimmy Dore you know and 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 like everybody else who who talks to a camera are doing, which is not to say that talking to a camera is, is worthless, you know, that there's no there's no benefit to that. It's just not the same thing. That there, there are like uh what left media can do is provide political education, 
and inspiration and you know entertainment certainly right own that uh and and maybe even you know ideological and strategic clarification which are all good things these are all things that the left needs but they're different things than actual organizing and activism in in the real world there there's like talking about politics is important and valuable for lots of reasons but it's not the same thing as politics Totally agree. Absolutely. And I mean, just to give you, I can only speak personally um, about how uh, people like Michael Brooks, I, I was not on the left. I mean, I didn't even realize how I wasn't on the left until I started watching Michael Brooks and he educated me. I mean, he persuaded me in the best possible way to you, move to the you, left. By saying that you were a uh, you were a NATO <laughs> show and uh, and and you were lying, you know, when you said you supported Never. progressive causes. Like Michael Brooks, I I don't I don't really under I don't really know if people understand how much of a loss, uh, you know, Michael's death has been to the to the left. Like because he was just such a clear, incredibly intelligent communicator and. He had this way of making you realize you're wrong without feeling judged. You get what I'm saying? Like, that's not yeah. an easy thing to do. I don't think I've ever came across a single person who can communicate the way that he has. Um, and I, I find myself going back to, you know, his show's archives and like rewatching things that had an impact on me because I, I have to say some of the stuff that's been going on over the last month has... Um, it's just been really hard uh, and and it, it muddles your mind in certain ways. And, and it's important to stay focused, right? It's important to not get sucked in to this unnecessary drama, which, you know, has this sole intention of dividing us and making us even less powerful than we are already. Um, so I, I really do turn to him even now uh, for some guidance uh, and some clarity. Uh, so I highly recommend you guys check out um, his archives. If you're not, you know, uh, a patron, a patron to the Michael Brooks show, you should be because that's how you have access to all his archives. And he's just, I miss him every day. Uh, his yeah. voice is so desperately needed. No, I, I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I still, uh, I, I don't know when I'm going to get to the point where I, I don't have that like itch to like text him about things that, that have happened and to, uh, you know, to get his take, which, uh, which, which, which I, which I, couldn't predict, which is a good thing, you know, because, uh, that like oftentimes, you know, it, it would be surprising, but then I would think about it. And like a lot of times I would, I would, I would see his point, you know, that would like he had a political intuition that I definitely, you know, relied on while he was alive. Uh, and, uh, and also just, just for, just for that, like, kind of like, just, just for the human effect of, uh, of, of him just being funny about whatever was going on, you know, which, which, which she, uh, you know, which he was, I mean, like I, he was more, um, yeah, like the, uh, the on, like there's, there's probably, I mean, obviously he was more uninhibited about, you know, certain people who annoyed him or whatever, uh, you know, in, uh, off camera, but like, other than that, right. You know, the, uh, the gap between the on and off camera versions was just remarkably, uh, small there, you know, that like that, that he, he was exactly as funny and exactly as insightful, you know, in, uh, in both, uh, in both contexts, but yeah, I think absolutely there are like I don't think anybody uh, you know can do quite what he did as a uh, as a communicator. You know, for the left, like I know we talked about this 
shortly after he passed, there, there's a uh, there's a video from uh, that you can find on YouTube from uh, not very long before the uh, pandemic started, uh, and uh, where he's speaking at uh, Lafayette College, uh, and he's he's talking to this this room full of college students, and you know his his initial presentation. I mean, it's actually kind of funny, you know, because he's like where like he has like the kind of it's like almost like a tweed jacket or something on he's leading against the chalkboard it's almost like the alternate timeline michael who became a college professor but uh uh which which i'm sure he would have killed at you know if he'd done but uh i, I think those would have been really good student evaluations uh every semester totally but uh but he yeah you know, no no i love can i just comment on that real yeah. quick like i just love the swagger like he had this <laughs> swagger during that talk that's just like it's i just love it and he handled the most annoying questions masterfully like i i don't know yeah. if most people would have the kind of patience he did and that's what i'm talking about i mean if you watch that video if you watch that full talk which i think is about like three hours long but it's worth it um you'll notice exactly what i'm referring to where he has this way of letting you know through like historical context and all of that, that you're wrong, right? Yeah. You don't feel like he's judging you or mocking you. Uh, he, you feel that he respects you and just wants to like open your mind to a different perspective. And Michael and I got close through Jimmy Dore, believe it or not, because I saw him making fun of Jimmy Dore and I was like, uh, I, I kind of love this. And I like DM'd him one day and I was like, you you totally get what's going on. Because at that time, I, I don't think most people were privy to, you know, some of the issues surrounding Jimmy Dore, but like Sam Cedar and Michael Brooks got it. And so that's how we started talking. And then we started talking about political issues. And that was when he really started to open my mind up to leftist politics. And I'm so grateful for that because it reinvigorated um, news and politics for me because I started to see things from a different lens, a much more interesting lens. Um, and I love that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I had, yeah, I, I mean, I certainly like in the, uh, in the talk itself at Lafayette, like the actual like initial presentation that he makes to the students, it's you know everything that was good about you know Michael's communicator. It's 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 funny. It's it's got that, um, yeah. I mean it's it's got that you know Michael Brooks swagger. Like you know like I I mean I always think of um, the time actually you know uh, not that long before everything thing locked down when uh, when he uh, he finally met my wife you know after years of my working with you know with 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 Michael and she made a comment to him about how uh, every time I see Ben watching YouTube it's either Bernie Sanders or you and he was like yeah that's correct that's what you should watch you know that's <laughs> yeah, like that's so just totally you know right but I love uh, it. Uh, so, so you get all of that, right. And, and also like very clear, like concise explanations, like in that talk, he's like basically giving, uh, Adolf Reed's point about anti-essentialism in like three minutes in this way. That's like for, for 19 year olds who've never heard of any of this. And it's, it's very clear. It's, it's really compelling. And he just like then moves on to like making jokes about branding and stuff. Uh, but yeah, the part that I like the most about it is what you just said that he's that you know, students are asking him some, you know, look, I mean, like some of these are pretty annoying college Democrat kinds of questions. And it would be really easy to imagine somebody with Michael's politics uh, responding to that by uh, making fun of them or, you know, just sort of like 
posturing for like whatever points it would get him from anybody in the audience who agreed with him or anybody who'd be watching it on YouTube later. Uh, but he didn't do any of that, right? Like he has uh, like this, um, I mean, there's one moment when there's like just a little bit of that when somebody asked him like a weird question about whether he was like a self-hating Jew because of his position on Palestine, but that's like it, you know, they, other than that, uh, he's, he's giving these answers that are, that are really smart answers, but they're also answers where you can tell it's really important to him that he can like make the case for his position in a way that they'll take seriously, that they, that, uh, that that's going to connect their worldview. So like, it's going to mean something to them. And that that's, that's just something that, uh, that he was, that he was doing all, all the time. And I mean, obviously the way that he could do that was really unique, but there is a, there is a more general thing here that everybody could, um, you know, try like try a lot harder to uh, to to do, you know, to uh, to the best of of all of our ability, you know, with how how we interface with everybody who who doesn't uh, who doesn't agree with us yet, because unfortunately, you because know, that is like that is most people, right? Like in in mm-hmm. uh, like you know, yeah, seventy one million people uh, voted for uh, voted for Donald Trump. Uh, you know, uh, everybody else, several million people more you know, voted for, for Joe Biden, which given the choice is the right thing to do, but it's also like, you know, Joe Biden won uh, the democratic primaries. Uh, he, uh, you know, you know, we, we lost that. Right. And especially if you have politi- political horizons that go beyond, you know, what, what Bernie Sanders is talking about, then you really need to think about, uh, about how far, um, like how far we are from convincing most people which isn't to say that you need to back down on anything. It isn't to say that you need to stop saying things that you think are true or making critiques you think are important, but it is maybe worth thinking like, how is this going to register with anybody out there in the wider world who isn't already on board, which is like the overwhelming majority of, uh, of the, of the public is, is not on board uh, yet with, you know, with what the socialist left is talking about. Right. I mean, it, it really goes back to questioning what your objectives are. Are your objectives centered on this self-image of being like the top leftist, the most left on the left, or is your objective to persuade people to join us? Right. And so if you want to, you know, show everyone that you're the most pure, then sure, go around like punching people in the face uh, and pretending like you're holier than thou and the best. But uh, I'm interested in persuading people to join us because we need numbers, we need people. Uh, and the power of persuasion is, you know, part of it is validating the real concerns that people have, not judging them for having those concerns and finding ways to provide leftist solutions to the concerns that they have. And um, I know people are doing that on the ground. I know the organizers are doing that, you know, as we speak. And I think attacking them is um, the worst way to go about this. I think um, joining them, um, validating the work that they do, supporting the work that they do, amplifying the work that they do through our programming, you know, I think is is a better way to go about this. And also just being skeptical of people who seem to have uh, some weird, um, you know, vested interest in dividing us. Like, I, I, I think that just that alone uh, has been an issue over the last month. And 
I just, I'm, I engaged in it and I regret engaging in it. Um, and I've just kind of decided like, mm, I'm going to log off because again, yeah. focus on what's, what's important, focus on what matters. Um, and just try to get people on board. That's really all we can do right now. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And and look, I'm sure there there definitely were times in all of this when when I got way angrier, you know, at, at people than than I should have. I, I don't have any doubt about it. Actually, like I I think um, this is something that uh, when I was talking uh, to Thaddeus Russell before I before I interviewed him on the show. Uh, you know, this is something I actually kind of realized in that conversation, you know, because I, I told him, you know, in passing uh, that I actually don't usually like get angry at like libertarians that who, who I argue with. Like, I just sort of think, yeah, of course they're wrong. I mean, that's just like a given, right? You know, they're going to be wrong. Uh, I get angry at leftists, you know, like that because uh, it's, uh, you know, because I, I guess my expectations are higher, you know, because because I, I, I see them as, you know, identified with me. So, uh, so when I think that they're, they're doing ridiculous things, I do get angry at that, which is, which is counterproductive. Usually like it's, it's way better, you know, 99% of the time it's, it's better to, uh, to either not engage with that stuff or, or if you do engage with it, you know, force yourself to do it in a better way. But, um, you know, but I'm, I'm definitely, uh, that's the, you know, that's definitely a work in progress. Uh, you know, that's, which is, which is something, which is actually also a Michael Brooks thing. I mean, you know, he, he would, uh, uh, like he would definitely tell, like, um, you know, he was, he was super disciplined about not, um, about what he engaged with and what he didn't engage with and, and, and how he did it. Right. You know, he, he might, you know, he might be spicy over text messages or whatever, but like, you know, when any kind of like public facing anything, you know, even like replying to somebody on Twitter or something, you know, he, he knew what he was doing there. Um, when I just asked, so there's a quick uh, super chat question. Uh, it's not about, well, the setup isn't something about I'm, I'm familiar with. Maybe you are, but uh, mm -hmm. it's, uh, what do you think about Marianne Williamson's uh, recent interview on Kyle and Crystal's podcast? And will you directly address the issue of the fracture relationship between uh, socials and spirituality? Uh, I do have stuff to say about the second part. I'm not familiar with the first part, but if you want to take the first crack at that. Yeah. So, um, you know, same, I actually am not familiar with the interview, so I can't comment on it unless I watch it. Um, but, um, you know, I, it's interesting because I identify as an atheist. Um, but I will say that in recent years I've been turned off by, some of the treatment toward religious people, you know, coming from atheists on the left, I, I don't really think it's helpful uh, because at the end of the day, again, it goes back to what we've been talking about. Um, we want to appeal to a broad coalition and you can't do that if you demonize people of faith. Um, and, you know, I know plenty of there are lots of people in my personal life um, who believe in Christianity, Catholicism, Judaism. My best friend is Jewish. I don't, I don't follow these religions. I don't believe in these religions, but these are great people. Um, and, you know, my mom, for instance, I grew up in a in, you know, Christian household. You know, my mom relies on her Christian religion for hope, for, you know, just to get through really, really difficult things in her life. And I would never want to take that away from her or from anyone else. Uh, the person who donated his kidney to my mom, you know, my mom was on dialysis. It was like a disastrous situation. Um, 
he he donated his kidney to my mom uh, and he's religious himself. And like one of the best people I know, like just so kind hearted. I want people to join, um, you know, our efforts. I want people like that to join our efforts and I don't want them to feel judged in any way for what they believe. And I think it's important to differentiate, um, you know, normal, like mainstream religious folk from, you know, fundamentalists, like fundamentalists are a problem and we need to be clear about that. Uh, but I, I don't like the judgmental rhetoric toward religious people. Um, I think you're muted, Ben, but I'm not sure. I was, uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I, I agree with, uh, I agree with all that. I, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm an atheist, but also I'm not, um, I'm not somebody who's, who's interested in, um, like trying as part of any kind of like political program to like convince anybody, uh, of, of that. Uh, this is actually something I've, um, like struggle with a little bit, actually trying to find the right balance and in, uh, in expressing because I'm, you know, look, I'm I'm also a philosophy nerd, so I, I I enjoy arguing about things like that and have done it, have done plenty of that in my life uh, before, you know, before I started doing what I what I do right now, uh, but uh, but I've kind of held back, you know, from from saying that much about this since since I have for exactly the reason that you're saying. That we we don't want, um, and you know, I mean, this is this is something that, you know, we never really got into it that much, but you know, but that I I did, um, you know, that I did slightly, you know, dis, uh, disagree, you know, disagree with Michael about, you know, because because he had, you know, some spiritual interests that I didn't share, and uh, and and that's and, you know, whatever. I mean, like, I think in I think in that particular relationship, also, like, I, I didn't press it that much because it it felt sort of hopelessly lame to. Uh, you know, to make some of those points, you know, uh, interpersonally there, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do like, I think that even though I am an atheist and outside of political contexts, I am happy to argue with people about that because like it's fun and it's interesting. And I'm curious about like, what's actually objectively true about the universe and I, certainly I want to live in a society where people have way more time and emotional energy to spend doing things like arguing about philosophy, you know, rather than spending all their time worrying about how to uh, pay for groceries and, you know, health insurance. Uh, but I'm not um, like, I've never really actually particularly been on board with the idea that, um, you know, like the sort of, certain kind of like old line socialist idea that like, you know, we should, that, you know, it's really important to disabuse people, you know, religion is the opiate of the people you need them to get, you know, whatever. All I need from anybody politically is just pluralism. That's it. You know, that like, all, mm -hmm. and actually the last chapter of against the web is very good on this. Like all, like, I don't care. Um, you know, like I care in so far as I'm interested in them as a human being, but you know, I mean, I don't care politically what anybody's metaphysical beliefs are. All I care is that they're not going to try to uh, impose them on anybody else uh, that they are. That exactly. They're yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. I, yeah. I think that's also mm -hmm. key, right? Um, most of the problems I've had with religion um, really centered on the fact that, especially in America, like religion is something that's cited to dictate the way you live your life. And it's like, right. but I don't believe in that religion. So why do I have to? you know, uh, abide by 
propose laws and regulations, um, right. you know, regarding my own body based on what this right. religion believes. So that is a problem. Um, but, you know, aside from that, um, I mean, I, I love Liz Brunig, for instance. Like, I think course, she's yeah. such a great person. And I would, the last thing I'd want to do is demonize her because of her Catholic beliefs. Like, it's none of my business. That's her personal, um, you know, religious belief. And as long as we're on the same, you know, page when it comes to uh, the policies that we need to make sure that people in this country live a life of dignity, then I'm all for it. Let's work together. Let's fight together. Yeah, no, exactly. Like as, as long as you're not like, yeah, if your religious beliefs are inspiring you to uh, try to uh, outlaw abortion or make life harder for gay and trans people, then we have a problem. Uh, but if, uh, if you want to live in an open pluralistic society where people can believe whatever they want, and you have different beliefs than me, then, then we do not have a problem. That's, that's totally, you know, uh, that's that's totally fine, uh, and 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 I think that uh, yeah, I mean I, I mean God, you know, I said earlier that you know one of the people I respect most in the world uh, is uh, is Cornell West, and you know, and and he and his uh, his political commitments are you know rooted in his reading of his Christian faith, but his reading of that faith doesn't tell him to you know to go out and 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 try to. Uh, you know, and and try to you know persecute people you know who to disagree or to to try to uh, you know to try to make laws against reproductive choice. You know, it, it tells him to go out and you know uh, and and help uplift you know the poor, the powerless. So yeah, I, you know that's that's if it, like I I mean I have no I have no issue you know with that whatsoever. I mean I I have I have different views, but I mean whatever. Like I can like you know like I said, you know I'm I'm happy to. Uh, you know, to spend lots of time uh, once we've sorted out the, you know, the healthcare and the housing and all that stuff, sitting around talking about that stuff. Uh, but, uh, but I'm not, I'm not interested. And particularly, uh, I think that I'm not in like the idea that, you, that some people think that they're, they have a lot in common with someone politically just because like they're both atheists or something, even if like the, you know, that like, oh, I have, I have more in common with some, you know, libertarian who doesn't believe in God that I have in common with, you know, Cornell West, clearly not. You know, I, I think I, like anybody who uh, who wants to have, you know, a decent society where everybody's material needs are met and people have more, you know, dignity and autonomy, you know, than, uh, than they have under capitalism uh, is is somebody who is a collaborator, you know, like is is somebody who uh, who I see as being on my team uh, regardless of uh, of what they think about the origins of the universe or you know what happens after you die, uh, but Anna Kasparian is uh, most certainly on my team. Uh, always really uh, enjoy trying to talk these things through with you and, and getting your perspective. Uh, and uh, I think that yeah, in uh, you know there are people who you know, who should be around, you know, like, like, like Michael, who, who, uh, who are not, who we would, uh, uh, you know, who, whose voices we're really missing right now. But, uh, but yours is one that I'm really happy uh, is, uh, is out there. And I was really enjoy talking to you. Uh, and uh, I promise that uh, she's uh, that she's really seriously uh, not getting paid by, uh, by NATO. to take <laughs> so, uh, Thank you. 
Thank you, Ben. Thank you. I love, I love everything you're doing. Um, your show's fantastic. Forrest, I'm glad to see you. Um, so keep up the good work and uh, have a great night, everyone. All right, thanks. Bye, Anna. All right. Um, we are going to uh, be joined in uh, just a minute uh, by uh, Vic Viana. Uh, but uh, first, uh, especially because I actually need to get up for a minute, uh, let's uh, let's play a quick preview of a conversation uh, that actually overlaps with one that I just had with Anna uh, when we were talking about Josh Halley. Uh, what we to what we're talking about in this clip is very similar uh, to that uh, with uh, with Dacha uh, from uh, from the Red Scare podcast. So as I said. The sort of reason for this interview had to do with that deplatforming on Twitter and goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode about free speech and corporate tech censorship and all of that good stuff. But because she actually did once uh, once interview uh, Steve Bannon, uh, we also uh, we also talked about that. And I just want to share that little clip with you guys again for uh, the full conversation. Uh, go to uh, patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. Uh, where you can become a patron of the show. Uh, I, I think I saw something flying by the chat. Somebody didn't quite get the reference I made earlier to uh, uh, the cost of a milkshake at a fifties nostalgia diner in 1994. I think, I think that was, I think they're, they were being sarcastic. <laughs> okay. I, I wasn't sure if that was uh, the plug. I think it's because it's the plug that every, every single <laughs> episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's the one, the one that I always, uh, I always use. Okay. I was a little, I was about to be worried about their cinematic education there. Uh, <laughs> But uh, let's uh, let's roll the clip. Yeah, I mean, my concern was when Steve Bannon's war room got deplatformed that us having had him on Red Scare would implicate us in some way. But thus far, we've haven't been faced any repercussions for it. Yeah, and, and I guess the Bannon thing uh, is part of what people are, are talking about. I listened to that one too. Uh, since I think when that happened, there was there was a lot of talk uh, going around. I mean, you know, whatever. If if you're anybody who's on Twitter enough to not on Twitter enough to not know what I'm talking about, you're much better off. And, you know, yeah, continue <laughs> to play, right? But uh, but if you are, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on about how uh okay this proves it right that this 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 you know their mask off moment they're platforming a fascist yeah 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 exactly which um you know platforming is also like a really weird word that's that's used in these these discussions that i think like it's one of these things that every once in a while it's, it's good just as a check to think okay how would i explain what this even means to somebody who wasn't in this world right like mm -hmm. like what platforming is supposed to be and why it's supposed to be bad that you know you have somebody you know like because it's almost as if right because i even saw it like with the uh the zizek peterson thing i would saw like some people say oh you know slavoj zizek is platforming you know jordan peterson it's like <laughs> it's like one of the best selling authors <laughs> in the world and yeah by debating him in a public forum yeah yeah that the uh that this Slovenian Marxist intellectual is, is, is like, you know, giving him his big break, you know, that uh, by, mm -hmm. by arguing with him or similarly that like Steve Bannon, who'd been a special advisor in the white house, uh, whatever his, whatever his job was initially in the Trump administration. Uh, and who's, who's like, you know, not a household name, but I mean, anybody who's a political junkie certainly knows who he is. Yeah. Um, 
that, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, there's lots of people listen to Red Scare, but I, I, I don't think that was a, uh, I don't think a lot of people were finding out who Steve Bannon was for the first time right. uh, by, listening to, uh, by listening to Red Scare. And, yeah. and if they were, I don't think they would have been radicalized by the conversation we had. Yeah, right. In particular, I mean, what I liked about that conversation uh, was that um, if you compare it to like, I remember around the same time I listened to, um, uh, you know, since whatever, I'm a strange nerd who will listen to stuff like this, uh, that there was, I think like a year before uh, there was this monk debate. So the monk debates are this like this really high profile thing that happens uh, in uh, Toronto. Uh, between Steve Bannon and David Froome, who's like a never Trump Republican. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that debate, like all it was, right? If you haven't watched it, I'll save you the effort. All it was was um, was Bannon throwing a lot of vaguely populist rhetoric about at Froome about working class deplorables and Froome throwing a lot of rhetoric about ba at Bannon about, uh, you know, like Bannon being a fascist. That was, that was, that was the whole debate. Uh, I, I don't think there was, ever actually any like specific like policy disagreements ever in, in the mm -hmm. debate probably because they're both republicans so how much do they really disagree about i don't know but exactly. uh, but then uh on the red scare debate you and anna uh, your co-host kept uh, asking that in this like really specific question which is hey you say that you're a populist why don't you support medicare for all mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that was, uh, I'm glad that we asked him that because he's sort of, I think, I'm against deplatforming fascists because I think if you do give them a platform, then they ultimately kind of will discredit themselves or people should be free to draw their own conclusions from what they have to say, which in Bannon's case wasn't, you know, anything very compelling. <laughs> Yeah, I think so, because in his response to that question, uh, I mean, look, I listened to the whole thing and uh, it's, you know, I mean, I, I think I remember it pretty well, but I couldn't really tell you what his end of the day response was. Yeah, I can't even remember what, it, what he said, yeah. Because it seemed like he said a few different things and they didn't quite add up to an answer. And then he's like, oh, here are some more Republican friendly things we could do about healthcare. Yeah. But why not Medicare for all? It's like, eh, I don't know, you know, and yeah. then he never really got to like, okay, here's the, here's the bottom line reason that, that I don't support it. Uh, and I think what that really showed is that at the end of the day, like Bannon, you know, he's a, he's a Republican with better marketing, you know, like, like he says, he says deconstruct the regulatory state. And that sounds kind of radical and depending on your position, maybe a little scary and, in a weird way, sort of like Foucault or something, but uh, in, but I don't know that he actually means that much that other Republicans don't mean by like deregulation. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's similar to Jordan Peterson in that he's really into kind of like mythologizing and talking in these really grandiose kind of mythic metaphors. Uh, but ultimately he's pretty toothless. Like he doesn't actually stand for anything he has his whole like fourth turning <laughs> philosophy and that's all very flimsy if you actually interrogate yeah. on it yeah yeah it sounds like it's yeah the whole fourth turning thing it's like it's like a little bit like there's like a certain kind of dweeby extremely right-wing person who's like twitter avatar is like some like greek statue or something mm -hmm. 
you know, it's like, it's like the uh, it's like the prose version of that, you know, that it's like that that it sounds like really grandiose. It's like, oh, this is a guy he must really know a lot about you know history and this and that. But it's like, okay, so what does that mean? What's what's the upshot of that? Yeah, it's like astrology, basically. At the end of the day, <laughs> exactly astrology. All right, so uh, that uh, that's from uh, the patron episode that's uh, that's dropping on Thursday, uh, which was a fun conversation. Uh, you know, even though I'm much more optimistic about the uh, the, the prospects for uh, some kind of successful socialist political project uh, than uh, than Dasha is at at, uh, at this point. I mean, I think she actually we got pretty deep into this you know i think she actually agrees with the left on pretty much everything but she's um you know but she's less uh she's less optimistic about what the prospects are for well, she she got famous for that uh video where she went against like the info wars info wars girl that um basically she was like honey i just want everyone to have health care when the girl was um <laughs> challenging her and i don't even think people really knew that she had a podcast at that point it was just kind of like a video that went viral so I think she's always kind of been on the left, but maybe had criticisms of the left. You know, yeah, yeah. I think she has some criticisms regarding like free speech and uh, and 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 things like that. Uh, although that stuff, I agree with. You know, the I think the things that I I maybe disagree with Dasha about uh, are are more just sort of level of cynicism or optimism about the prospects for for the left uh, post. Uh, you know, post Bernie. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think, and I guess what really worries me about that is that there are people who've, who've convinced themselves that, uh, you know, because of like signaling, because like there's a certain kind of like salty Eastern European humor that like doesn't, you know, that like reads in a different way to some people because of like who somebody is friends with is friends with is friends with, you know, that like they've they've convinced themselves and themselves that um, that these people that Anna and Dasha are like bitter political enemies uh, when really they they agree with us about like ninety seven percent of of everything and and I think that that doesn't mean that you shouldn't argue about the three percent but I I do worry about how insular a left subculture can get that like even somebody who shares that many starting points that you're that eager to just write them off as like secretly being fascist or something. Like I, I mentioned in the interview in that, um, that red scare episode. Uh, and by the way, I think we've lost Vic. I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah. There. Um, he, he, but, he might've, he might just be refreshing it. He uh, popped up and. Uh, okay. Um, All right. So, <laughs> so yeah. In um, after, uh, the 2019 uh, debate between uh, Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Žižek, uh, the uh, the Red Scare girls had on um, Amber Lee Frost, who of course is a uh, was a, a guest on the show at the end of the year, but who's also somebody who some people like think of in this category. You know that like they're, you know, they're, they're like oh they pretend to be leftists, but they're you know secretly fascists or something, and. I remember in that debate, because it was Jordan Peterson, they talked about the trans pronouns issue, and they all agreed that, of course, it'd be super obnoxious not to call somebody by their preferred pronouns. You know, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the death penalty somehow came up 
in that conversation. I don't even remember how it did. Uh, and they all said they were like really disturbed that that existed. And I remember thinking, man, they do not make fascists like they used to. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think, I think a lot of that is also just being extremely online and kind of our, our ability to see kind of people as almost public figures when they have like a media platform. And you know what I mean? Like, you know, people get to put all of their opinions out there and, uh, you know, we all, we all kind of cancel each other for them on online, but I don't think any of that really translates into the real world and into real like coalition building. If, if we were actually to come into power, I feel like a, a lot of it is just an expression of kind of a lack of power. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's exactly right. That when you actually think that you're going to be able to achieve something together in the real world, you think that you can, um, you know, yeah, like that, like that Dasha video about the InfoWars girl, you know, like, uh, yeah, I just want healthcare. You know, when you think that you're going to be able to get healthcare, when you think you're going to be able to get some civil rights victory or union, you know, things, whatever, then um, your incentives are to try to find ways that you can work with people to, uh, to, to achieve that. Right. So like if, if there's, if there's somebody who like maybe seems like they might even have some bad views on some things, uh, then uh, then you're, you're still going to be like a little slow to write them off because because you you need them on your side. Uh, whereas if you if nothing is at stake, like nothing is on is at stake with a lot of this online and media stuff, unfortunately, right now, or it seems like you know it's uh, to a lot of people like nothing's at stake that you've just accepted that you're going to be permanently powerless. Then uh, then your incentives the opposite. You know that it's like yeah, what what do you have to gain from like giving somebody the benefit of the doubt or, or thinking it's like, okay, you know, I don't like the way they expressed that, but like, do they really disagree with me that fundamentally? Uh, in fact, a lot of times your incentive structure at that point is to find reasons to, uh, to write people off. Yeah. And, and that's, what's really been so depressing about like the post Bernie era of, of being on the left, because, you know, it, it seemed like we were all kind of working towards the same goal at one point. I mean, you know, some people differed on it or kind of showed their teeth and embraced like, you know, uh, Warren's candidacy or something and kind of showed that they're not an ally necessarily. But for the most part, I mean, you know, everybody on the left or that considers themselves on the left were working for a common goal um, for a little bit there. And it felt like we were kind of a cohesive move movement. And now it, you know, we do like everybody has these like media media careers and political careers that it seems like they're incentivized to just cause conflict with other uh people with yeah because because that. that's because yeah that gets i mean look if you if you're in media that gets clicks uh even if you're just like some guy with a twitter account uh that like you at least get even if you don't get anything out of it financially you at least get a sense of validation out of it that you know yeah like, that if you if you sort of get the ball rolling on denouncing somebody, uh, you know, then that's like a really good way to like get a lot of people to validate you really quickly. You know, get that little dopamine hit of you know the ten thousand likes and retweets or whatever. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's no. I mean, this gets kind of down to some of what I was talking about with Anna before. Like, um, <laughs> you know, this is not in my interest to tell people to do, but like at a certain point, you just do have to log off. Yeah. Definitely. And, and, and I really don't think that, you know, being extremely online is really helping anything right now. I mean, for, for the majority of us, like, and, you know, we get trapped further and further into these insular groups, the more online we are. And it, it might, you know, it might actually, um, 
help out if you're like working on a political campaign or you actually have goals that you're working to achieve and you're actually looking to reach some people i mean the majority of people aren't on twitter or anything like that but still you know if you're not working for anything you just kind of have these general values you're you know you're pushed into finding people with similar values and and the the less you actually have to the less chance you have of actually achieving those goals the more um you're incentivized to kind of push people off that don't share all of those same goals yeah, no, that's 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 totally right. So uh, we're now joined uh, by uh, Vic Viana, um, so who uh, very kindly agreed to uh, to step in this week uh, since uh, David Griscom is uh, is traveling, and and since the you know show started pretty much something that that we've done uh, is you know it's after you know a couple of hours of uh, of talking about you know music. It's it's always fun to uh, to end the show. Uh, by you know, pouring a drink and uh, and and spending a few minutes uh, talking to uh, to right. David about music, and uh, part of the uh, part of the way that I, I got the idea for the segment in the first place is that it's something that you know that I used to enjoy like in the uh, you know out there in the actual you know uh, world, um, <laughs> you know after you know after some nights of you know bar hopping and. Uh, uh, in Brooklyn, uh, then, you know, I'd be back at, you know, Griscom's apartment and, uh, and, you know, he'd, he'd like pour us some whiskey and, and he'd usually, you know, he'd play me some country music, uh, that he was into, uh, and, uh, and tell me about it. And, you know, and, and I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to share that with, uh, you know, the world in general, or at least the audience of this show. Uh, and I do, you know, and I do like, you know, and appreciate a lot of that music and have, have grown to like and appreciate it a lot, you know. I did even before that, you know, but, uh, but, you know, I've grown to obviously Griscom, you know, likes it more than, you know, like as knows more about it than I do. And, and that's, that's helped me like, uh, appreciate a lot of it more. Uh, but of course, uh, the kind of, uh, the kind of music that I often see you post about Vic is, uh, yeah. is, is, is what I actually, uh, you know, on my own, mostly in my, you know, in my life have you know, have spent a lot more time listening to. And so, I thought this would be a fun. Uh, this would be a fun chance, you know, having uh, having you substitute here to uh, to talk uh, to talk a little bit uh, talk a little bit about that. You know, do uh, do a little rock music at the end of the show. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, I am. I also am like only vaguely familiar with country, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, did you guys see the? Sorry, uh, but uh, I just this reminded me of like the photo that Christmas just posted on his Instagram. It totally is just him like sitting in the woods, like, you know, with his hair and it just, he yeah. just looks like it's a country uh, rock album. Sorry. Is he in, he's still in Oregon? Uh, he had like the cliffs behind him in that. I'm not that sure picture. where he is geographically or if they're driving or flying, but it does look like the Pacific North, Northwest a little bit more, but he's just, yeah. you know, it's him sitting <laughs> near a waterfall. <laughs> no, he looks, he looks so uh, majestic in that, in that picture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, you know, this is, yeah, I mean, this is a very, uh, you know, very low pressure thing. Just thought this, uh, this might be fun because I, I think there have been like about 20 times uh, in, uh, in the past when I've seen, you, I've seen you post about, you know, one or another of my favorite albums. And, uh, and so, yeah, so right. it can be good. <laughs> Like chiming up some bread about Neil Young or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, actually, I mean, the conversation we were having with Anna before, uh, right when I hopped on, uh, 
uh, the way, you know, that got me thinking kind of about, you know, uh, talking about religion. I was think, you know, I was in the Black Sabbath earlier today. I was like, you know, what attracted me to this, like, you know, when I was a teenager or whatever. And I actually, you know, I went to Catholic high school, you know, during the Bush years and like, uh, you know, I think that, and there was like a cohort of guys that were kind of bad kids and like we were into metal, you know, and I think that like, uh, you know, it's funny because I think to a certain extent, like it's kind of passe now or like kind of just seen as goofy and campy, but I think if you're coming from that background, like it still is, a little, seems a little rebellious, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that just, that conversation just got me <clears throat> thinking about that, um, you know. Yeah, which is actually I funny. Think, too, that like, what? No, it's yeah. Oh, yeah, which is um, uh, which is funny uh, that you mentioned that because actually earlier today I was uh, I mean I don't you know I don't go anywhere now really because because uh, I uh, obviously you know uh, the uh, the pandemic and you know my my whole life is on the computer uh, you know between the uh, between the show and uh, and other things so. Um, you know, I pretty much, you know, leave the, uh, you know, I pretty much uh, go outside to either take the dog on walks or, you know, do curbside pickup, you know, uh, grocery orders. But, uh, but I was doing the second thing today. I was, I was going out to, uh, to pick up a grocery order and, um, and they, uh, and actually a fairly recent uh, Black Sabbath uh, song from the, uh, from like the reunion uh, album they did uh, came on the radio, which was the one uh, called God is Dead. Uh, so that's, that's definitely, um, in fact, I, I saw, I saw Black Sabbath in, uh, I'm trying to think this would have been, uh, 2013. Uh, so it was, it was while they were, were doing the, uh, you know, reunion tour with Ozzy. Uh, and, and that was definitely, uh, saw them in, um, in South Florida, at, uh, Pompano beach. And, uh, uh, and it was, and that was definitely part of the shtick then. Like they had, uh, like one of they had the screen up with like different images that they you know they were playing you know during the concert, and one of the images I remember was of like a uh, was like a little clip from the seventies. Uh oh, do we lose? Okay. Um, I, I think he's just refreshing again. Yeah, oh, back there we go. Yeah, yeah one of, one of, You're describing the concert. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. It totally so, froze on mine. Yeah, at the uh, yeah at this Black Sabbath concert, two thousand thirteen. I remember like one of the images they were projecting up there was um, was from the seventies, I guess, and it was evangelical protesters and like you know the sort of short sleeve dress shirt and tie, like holding up signs right. saying "Black Sabbath exalts Satan." <laughs> that's so funny. That's great. I mean, that's I mean, it's funny too because that's like a looking at that now. It's like oh man, it used to be at the you know in a certain respect but um yeah i mean um they're great did you hear recently actually it came on my spotify a couple days ago about post malone it's actually pretty great it's like um yeah i I have ozzy in a modern setting all right, the uh, the audio is breaking up a lot, but the uh, but you were asking about, uh, um, yeah, we okay. This this is uh, this is unfortunate. If this if we can't make if we can't make this work, because uh, I, re- I really want to have this conversation. So if we can't uh, if we can't make this work, then we'll 
uh, then we'll we'll do it. Uh, you know, we'll we'll do it next week, and you know, postpone the next uh, Outlaws Revolutionaries for a week so we can do it. But uh, but you were asking about the post Malone thing, and uh, I have not heard that actually. That's a good reminder. I remember hearing that that existed. Uh, but but it is funny, like the way. Okay, I couldn't make that out. Okay. All right, Vic. Let's. Uh, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to tr- to do a uh, to do a take two uh, at, a, uh, at a at a later debate because uh, right. later date. I'm I'm kind of hearing some like it, you're coming in through. You're coming through well for two or three sentences, and then. And then it's it's kind of staticky. Although your your video also got a lot better, so so maybe the uh, maybe the internet's yeah. Although you're also frozen, so okay. okay. All right. Uh, so um, we'll call it. Okay. All right. All right. Sorry, guys. The uh, I think the internet has uh, has defeated us here for <laughs> uh, uh, for uh, for this segment, uh, but we will uh, we will for for sure. Uh, for sure do this even if we have to like you know find some way of uh of recording it uh you know of of doing a pre-record if we're where vic is going to be uh next uh next monday uh you know isn't isn't going to be good either um <laughs> uh somebody in chat says lol vic sounds like iron man uh so Oh, he's, he seems like he. Oh no, he dropped okay. back. Yeah, it seemed like he was coming back there for a <laughs> second, but I think he is. Uh, I think he is gone again. Uh, but uh, you know, but this this is clearly possible. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Vic was on. Uh, you know, was on our our election live stream last year. So uh, so I, I I believe that he uh, he has he has access to. Uh, you know, good internet connection. We went on. We went on a uh, Katie's streamyard like a couple weeks ago. Me and him, and it, it seemed to work out. Okay, so yeah, something is just on the fritz tonight. So this is this yeah. is not a long term problem. We can uh, uh, we can do this. Uh, we can do this next Monday. Uh, but um, but in any case, uh, you know, I am I am looking forward to uh, to doing it whenever we do. We are able to do it. Uh, because you know Vic is always fun to talk to, you know whether it's about politics or anything else. I was and, hoping to talk to him about our um, populism. Like I was hoping that he would do a plug for our uh, populism doc that that dropped a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I- yeah, no, we uh, yeah we played that on the uh, uh, we played that in the live stream. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was really good. Uh, so yeah, and if and if people aren't familiar with with Vic's other work, um, he uh, he was. Yeah. Also, the uh, the the main you know um, video maker for those uh, those illicit history uh, documentaries on the uh, on the Michael Brooks show, like some of which are are crazy good. Like I love uh, yeah. the, uh, the one about um, uh, you know Michael Manley and you know and uh, the sort of triumph of uh, you know drug gangs over uh, over socialism in uh, in Jamaica like i i just remember thinking that like that's that's something that you could show to somebody who's like your i don't know like not super political brother-in-law who likes gangster movies like you could yeah. you could you could show that guy uh that uh, that Jamaica uh, illicit history doc that and- was that was the first that was the first one that i got to find any uh video for i mean not not a lot of it, but the way that we were doing them first was that Vic would do the video and I would do the audio, like cut it, and then I would send it to him. 
And that was like the first one that I got to like find any video for, I'm pretty sure. So I was like really, I was really proud to help out with that one. Um, yeah, yeah, no, yeah but Vic's, Vic's amazing. He does, he does really good work on, on these and um, he, on, on the list of histories and on now the Jacobin uh, docs that we've been doing. And I, I feel, I feel really like, I feel really honored to have got like to get to work with him as much as I do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big fan. So, uh, so yeah, he does really good. Uh, he does really good video work. Yeah. I know, you know, Michael was, uh, you know, like really proud of those, those illicit histories. Uh, and, uh, and he's, he's always an interesting guy. He's always fun to talk to. And, um, and uh, he is constantly posting good stuff about music. So, uh, yeah. So, so, so next Monday for, for sure, uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to have that conversation and I am, uh, I am really looking forward to it uh, for, uh, for the moment though, uh, unless uh, there are any uh, last minute super chat questions uh, that, uh, that people want, uh, want us to, uh, want us to get to uh, before we, uh, before we drop off, uh, we're probably going to cut it in, uh, in just a minute for tonight uh, before we do that. I want to talk about a little bit of stuff of what's uh, what's coming up uh, over the course of the next week or so. So uh, next uh, next week, uh, the uh, the next regular uh, Monday uh, Monday night episode, uh, the guest is going to be Michael Albert, uh, who is along with Robin Hanhel. He's he's one of the two main theorists of uh, Paracon participatory economics, uh, and so in terms of one of the things I touched on with Thaddeus Russell, you know, this about uh, writing the recipes for the cookshops of the future, trying to figure out, you know, how, how socialism could work. I think he has really interesting things um, to, uh, to say uh, about that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a question, but I'll read it anyway. Uh, Joe Brumer on uh, 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 Super Chat says, uh, Forrest Mustache is the only reason I watch your show. So, you know, fair enough. Can't argue with that. <laughs> Uh, it's the one they send you. You start, uh, you start working as a super producer, and the they send you your mustache union card. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right, right. tier front. Yeah, you, you think Matt Leck just had that mustache naturally? Come on. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah. So, uh, good talk to Michael Albert. Should be able to do like a pretty, uh, pretty deep dive about Paracon and anarchism, and you know, he has. Uh, you know, I, I don't agree with him about everything, but you know, but he has a lot of interesting things to say. I think he's one of the most thoughtful, you know, thinkers on the uh, on the far left. Uh, and um, the week after that is uh, going to uh, be a panel, uh, you know, on the on the assumption that we don't get an actual coup in between now and then. Uh, so uh, Joe Biden is going to be president uh, by two uh, two weeks from now. So uh, I thought a good good way to start that era. Would be with a panel on Biden and American Empire uh, with uh, Katie Halper, Daniel Bessner, and Rania Kalik. So that's going to be two weeks from now. Uh, Michael Albert's going to be next week. Uh, there is, remember, uh, lots of good stuff going on on uh, the um, uh, the YouTube uh, channel uh, between uh, you know between episodes. Uh, so there are uh, regular Wednesday uh, movie live streams. Uh, where we talk about, you know, we talk about movies, you know, off with different guests. So the one this, uh, all, you know, always me and Forrest, you know, sometimes various guests. Uh, the one this week is uh, is is going to be about uh, Raging Bull, continuing our uh, our Martin Scorsese series. 
Uh, so uh, if you, if you want to watch Raging Bull and, and then uh, then watch us talk about it and, uh, and ask some questions, that's on Wednesday. Uh, might start actually having you know watching some of these movies with uh, with patrons on the uh, on the Discord. Still trying to figure out how that might work. Yeah, that would be that would be really cool. Yeah, especially uh, if we start doing like uh, you know other ones besides just the Scorsese ones, which are you know longer longer movies and. You know, finding time to do that is yeah, okay. yeah. I think I think uh, I think ninety minutes movies are probably better for the uh, yeah. for the Discord watching, uh, and also I should say there is a super chat question. But before we get to that, uh, that uh, the other sort of standing live stream series that we've been doing every week uh, is the Sunday night uh, debate series. Uh, so we watch um, uh, often much older, not always. Uh, debates uh, that are available on YouTube, like we've uh, we've watched uh, James Baldwin versus William F. Buckley, and uh, uh, this yesterday uh, we watched uh, Christopher Hitchens versus George Galloway. Uh, so um, the one this week, uh, I'm going to be joined by uh, Russell Sabriglia and uh, Conrad Hamilton. We're going to watch uh, Slavoj Žižek's uh, debate uh, with. Uh, Graham Harmon, so that's that's much more of a um, of of an esoteric kind of philosophical debate, but I think it should be fun, and I think those two guys, uh, Conrad and Russ, should do a good job of of helping me, you know, break down uh, what's what, what's being said and, and and make it accessible and and kind of hone in on what's interesting about what Zizek and Harmon are arguing about. It was, it was really it was really funny to um be part of that. Well, like not not as much part of it as just kind of eavesdropping in but the uh cornell west Zizek panel that that uh that russell did for tmbs it was it was really it was really funny to watch them just talk over him and totally like to it but yeah yeah i felt bad for for russell when i was um uh you know when i was listening to that i listened to it in podcast form uh since i think as allegedly the moderator i think he got to ask like three questions in an hour uh, because uh, Cornell, like you know, Zizek is obviously doing the Zizek thing and and uh, going from subject to subject and making associations and you know and uh, and Cord- you know Cornell West is riffing off of that and bouncing off his energy the way that he does and those are probably like the two biggest personalities you could possibly get yeah for something like that so I mean as a moderator I don't know what there is to do except for just kind of stand outside and let it happen but and they um, they, they even plugged each other's books at like different parts of it I don't know it was yeah, uh, yeah. At, no, at, the, at the end of it I popped up. And then I don't, it's not in like the one that we released because I was, it, we were doing it in like speaker view and gallery view. And you can hear Cornell West go, Brother Forrest in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember, um, yeah, I remember telling, uh, I don't even remember whether this was on air. I think it might have been before the episode started. Uh, but back uh, one of the times I was on TMBS in studio uh, before uh, it was, you know, during the, uh, the burning campaign and uh there was a um there was a panel in south carolina uh where uh cornell west had referred to bernie as this magnificent vanilla brother bernie sanders <laughs> and uh and i remember telling michael that you know one of, one of my main goals in life was to have cornell west refer to me at least once as a magnificent vanilla brother <laughs> uh, but uh but yeah, no, that was amazing. Like that, that's like something that like, if you listen to that conversation, you know, Cornell West and Slavoj Zizek, that like almost ruins you for listening to podcasts. Cause like, yeah. what's, what's going to top that? 
I forget, uh, I forget who said it also. There was like the, someone was saying like the two versions of uh, Cornell West saying brother. He said like magnificent vanilla brother Bernie. And then there was the other one that he's like brother Biden. But like he said it in like a really. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, the, the best example of this uh, is um, when uh, when Michael was interviewing Cornell West and uh, and West actually brought up against the web, you know, I, I, which I, I think he just read that on his own. I don't, I don't think that Michael actually told him about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and he, he was praising it. Right. I, in fact, I think he said it was a magnificent text, but he also like, there was a point in the conversation uh, when he said, um, when he was like, well, I mean, it's also like, I really want to see what you do next. Cause you know, it's these, these guys, you know, these, these intellectual dark web people, you know, you criticize in uh, what, what did he, his his exact phrase was, um, so he's talking about the intellectual dark web, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Sam Harris. Uh, and he said, and I remember thinking this hilarious at the time, I remember texting Michael about it, because like this is, I think, the most personally insulting I've ever heard Cornell West be about anybody. Uh, what he said was, well, these aren't the most profound brothers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, uh, which is exactly right. They are not the most profound brothers, but no. uh, uh, Observer, thank you so much for the super chat. Says, you ever going to do something about uh, Marta Haneker and uh, decentralized participatory uh, planning? So I think this is a variation on the same kind of idea of uh, uh, Paracom participatory economics that I'm going to be talking about with uh, Michael Albert next week. Um, so I'm not super familiar with, uh, Harnaker's variation on it. It's certainly something I'll look into. I mean, it's something that obviously I am, you know, I am interested in, uh, in different proposals that have been made about how, you know, socialist economy might work. And as I said, I'm working on that book with Bhaskar and Mike Beggs, you know, where, where we're trying to, you know, put one of those forward. And so I'm, I'm definitely Is that your first uh, official announcement of it. Uh, uh, well, it's, uh, actually Bhaskar spilled the beans, uh, in, uh, in late 2020. I don't even remember. He was doing a Jacobin, I think they were still called stay at home at that point, uh, about, uh, social democracy. And, and he, he, he mentioned it in there and I, and I remember thinking, it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that was public yet. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but well, he's, got, he's got that power. He's, he's the one that can. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> but yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm obvious. So obviously, I'm interested in this stuff. So I will check out, uh, you know, Marty Honecker. I mean, I, I guess I would just say more generally that to me, the reason to try to develop uh, and and think through these specific proposals about uh, how a post-capitalist economy could work aren't so much that I really believe that anybody in like, you know, the 22nd century uh, is going to be like really basing their policy decisions, uh, you know, in the, you know, workers' republic of the future on, uh, you know, what me and Bhaskar said in, in, uh, in 2021, that it's like, oh, no, we really need to find out what these like, uh, um, Oh, yeah. So that was a uh, specific uh, recommendation for a book by Marta Honecker. So it's called Planning from Below, available from Monthly Review Press. It's, uh, two, it's two $5 uh, Super Chats. Now you have to read it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I don't know. Is the, is the book more than 10 bucks? Uh, <laughs> nah, probably, you know. Um, 
but uh, but no, I, I I actually will read that. I, I am interested in finding out, you know, what, what her version is of it. Uh, but again, I think the reason to do this, the reason to like that phrase from Marx, I was talking about with Thaddeus Russell about the uh, recipes for the cookshops of the future. And I understand like why like Marx was hesitant to to do that, right? Like because I I think that I think there's a core of it that comes from his deep uh, democratic commitments that. It's like, look, obviously this is something that people are going to have to actually figure out in a context that is not our context and yeah. facing challenges and problems that, we, that you know, we're not going to be able to just sort of like anticipate and dream up answers to from the perspective of 2021. And I think that's all totally right. Uh, so the reason I think that it's, it's valuable to do that work of trying to lay out those sorts of blueprints for what a social society could look like is not so much that I think that uh, people, you know, like workers in a future post-capitalist society are going to be slavishly like, um, you know, come in uh, uh, like copying the details of what, you know, me and Bhaskar and Mike Begg say, uh, or that, or what Marta Honecker might say in that book from Monthly Review Press, uh, or what uh, Michael Albert says, or you know Robin Hanhell or Eric Old Wright, who wrote about this stuff. Uh, it's it's more that even if the, what you come up with isn't necessarily exactly what's implemented, uh, I think that it's still important to lay it out because right now one of our big problems is what Mark Fisher called capitalist realism, which which isn't the same thing as like celebrating the status quo, thinking the status quo is awesome. It's just thinking that uh, the status quo is is all that there is, all that there ever is going to be. You know that they that there's no uh, that as Margaret Thatcher said that there is no alternative. Yeah. And, and so I I think even with a lot of people who, I mean this honestly, uh, like this takes us back. Not that we're going to dwell here, but this takes us back to force the vote because I think that like one of my big points in that debate was that the re like the reason that. I think, right? Uh, some people think the reason that um, Medicare for all polls so well, but voters aren't punishing politicians uh, who oppose it. And some people think the reason for that is that they don't know that those politicians are opposing. And I'm sure that's that's true in some cases, but I don't think that's the main problem. I think the main problem is not that people don't know that politicians are opposed to it. I think the problem is that you don't get mad about something not happening until you believe that it might happen. Yeah. Completely. And that's that, uh, and that's kind of that Ronan Burton Shaw quote that Griscom likes to use and that, you know, I've kind of taken up using, um, that he says, you know, our main challenge is convincing people that, you know, that these things are options and that politics can help change their lives. No, that's exactly it. Like, I think the problem with the population at large is not having that belief that, pol that politics can change their life. It's that sort of deep way that capitalist realism infiltrates into our souls that people think that uh that anything that sounds like a big departure even if it's like a very mild social democratic measure like medicare for all uh or you know which i mean again i understand it would be huge in the context of the u.s right now but like certainly by global standards a very mild social democratic measure yeah. even something like that i think most people think well that sounds like a big break from the status quo so they don't they don't believe it's going to happen they don't they, they think yeah that sounds like something politicians might talk about but you know it'll never happen ever like their whole experience of life is that big reforms that solve their problems never actually happen through politics 
And so I think our, our problem with the general population is sure, people might, you know, when a pollster calls somebody up and says, um, how would you feel about Medicare for all? Most normal people are going to, who aren't right-wing ideologues are going to say, yeah, I'd love it. Uh, yeah, yeah. But the but the problem, but that's very different from taking it seriously enough as a possibility to get angry that it's not happening. We have, we had giant protests and riots over the summer after the murder of George Floyd, uh, because I think people, a lot of people think that, yeah, come on, it's, it's 20, you know, well, 2020 at that point, like we're in the 21st century, it should be possible to have like policing where shit like this doesn't happen all the time. Uh, they, they, they take that seriously, but we don't have big protests and riots over Medicare for all, because I think most people who support it, who like the idea, don't take seriously that's going to happen. So I think that, I think you need to rebuild that, that confidence that, that mass politics can actually change the world. And then I think when it comes to socialism, that you have a, a sort of second level version of that problem, even among the hardcore uh, yeah, my, my cat has a lot to say tonight. Uh, so, I was trying to check if it was on your end or my end. There was a, a cat for a second. I was like... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But like, even among people who are pretty hardcore, like even among people who like everything that Bernie said, you know, like, you know, what AOC says, uh, you know, who, uh, who were at least, let's say, socialism curious, uh, that even most people like that like don't really take seriously the idea that we could ever get beyond capitalism entirely because uh, it just sounds so distant from anything that they can imagine because they came up in a post-Cold War world where the idea that, you know, it was just so ingrained that capitalism is basically the only game in town. So even people who take seriously the idea that we could have Medicare for all, that we could maybe turn the U.S. into Norway, certainly don't have any horizons for anything that goes beyond Norway. Yeah. That's why I think it's worthwhile to work on these blueprints, because if I think you need to at least be able to give people an idea that they could imagine actually happening of what a post-capitalist society would be like, for them to take that goal seriously enough to fight for it. Yeah. And there's also something with, I mean, using the George Floyd protests, you know, as an example, or police protests in general. Um, I mean, you're every, every town and every city has police, you know what I mean? Like you probably know them to some extent, like unless you're in a huge city, like, you know, New York or something like you at least probably know people who know the police in your town or your city. And they're a lot of times they're like more local people. And it's something that you feel like you can change. Whereas national politics, may, like it's not as empowering. Like you know, it's not as empowering to um, fight for something. Like you can you can rage against politicians that, on a national scale, but you don't. You probably don't feel like you have any sway over that. But but at the same time, um, you know, there's going to you know, it's not going to be like let's say capitalism did get overthrown in the next like in the next year or something. I mean, I don't think that that's likely. I think most likely we're going to transition to something that. It's going to be a transition over time, but you know, at the end of that, everyone's going to be standing, looking at each other, and going, you know, what now? And <laughs> and it's going to end up being a coalition of a lot of different groups. So having a blueprint, you know, having blueprints that people have worked on a lot over time, definitely, you know, seems like something that is incredibly useful at that point. Yeah, no, I I think that's exactly right. That you need to have. Uh, in fact, I think that was actually a problem. Um, after the uh, after the Russian Revolution, you know that uh, that people yeah. hadn't like that that um, all of the sort of effort and thought and debate, you know, that had gone on with you know Bolsheviks and Mensheviks and social revolutionaries into thinking about 
how you could make a revolution come about, right? Like I think mm -hmm. remarkably little uh, had had gone into um, to what you uh, what you do afterwards, and so I think that some of these like big oscillations from the initial policy of you know of uh, what was called war communism to you know the sort of economic liberalization that happened with the new economic policy to then of course you know what happened later, but I mean I think a lot of that is that people are you know making it up as they go along, which. To be clear, I think a certain amount of that is inevitable. That, like, I don't think that you can anticipate everything, you know, far in advance. Um, and and I'm sure that people will have concerns, be facing problems that you know that you just have to be at that moment, you know, to to see. But that said, I at least want people in that position to be able to draw on like a big reservoir of people trying to think hard about and, and debate and, and look at at least what the possibilities are, you know, so, so they're, they're not, um, you know, so, so they, they at least, you know, whether people end up agreeing, you know, with me or with somebody else or whatever, you know, so like at least they have something to, uh, to draw on. Like, and, it, and that's why even in terms of immediate social democratic stuff, I think it's really useful that uh, that like that's why I like you know that uh, Matt Brunig you know does that uh, People's Policy Project uh, that like it's incredibly useful to have people working out like policy details even for yeah. social democratic ideas that like we just don't have you know the votes we don't have enough people in power to carry out because one once you get there it's good to have something like hey here's what we can do uh, you know it's uh, that uh, that you can like the same way that like ghoulish right-wing lobbying organizations, you know, come up with policies that, that lawmakers could just cut and paste. And, yeah. Like Alec and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, totally. Right. And then also just because uh, people have uh, that just because it, I think it can again be useful to show uh, that we're not just sort of yelling um we're not just sort of yelling about things that we don't like, not that yelling about things that you don't like is, is not legitimate, you know, but yeah. we actually do have well-worked out ideas about, about what could happen. I, I think that especially at a time when you're facing this kind of multi-level crisis of confidence about, about uh, a left project that, you know, that, that whether, um, you know, whether we could ever actually achieve some of these things, you know, uh, whether we could achieve even like basic social democratic measures, uh, whether we could go beyond social democracy and you know have post-capitalist society uh, that you know that win a lot of people you know like you need that you know like even um, I think to have a successful socialist movement obviously the most important thing is to energize like the huge mass of the population that you know that mm -hmm. you need to get on your side uh, but you also do need the hardcore of people who have like a a real long-term vision you know, that they're willing to stay in, stay in it in the long haul because because they it's not just sort of immediate what can happen this year, what can happen next yeah. year. And I and I think that uh Boshkar has done a lot of good work on like the minor plan, like talking talking through that as like a social democratic um moment in Sweden. Um he did the you know he, I mean he's written about it. He's done the the you know Jacobin um talk about it and stuff like that and and i think that comes from the kind of the same place him him realizing that um you know if we are going to go beyond social democracy like there are kind of already put it put through frameworks and plans to do that and you know it's never about copying it exactly as you know i mean as a cut and dry blueprint but 
thinking through these things is going to be a very important part of things. And it's kind of been a, a parable almost for as long as socialism and these ideas have been around that it's easy to, not easy, but you know, it's, it's one thing to call for a revolution. It's one thing to kind of have a critique and a framework around all these things. And then when the moment comes, you know, if you're unprepared for it, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a big chance that, you know, you're just going to get swept up into something different. And that's kind of happened with protest movements a lot. There's always kind of a right wing of it and a left wing of it protesting, you know, an unfair system. And if you don't have a framework in place or a blueprint in place, everybody just kind of gets swept along with the nationalist or the right wing framing of it. And you don't want to, you know, give that up, like give up the, the, the vision of the future. Yeah. So Observer, thank you for the super chats. As another great book is a recent reprint of E.P. Thompson's anthology about self-organized uh, youth work brigades accomplishing titanic construction projects in post-war Yugoslavia, the railroad. Uh, yeah, I think actually, um, yeah, I think the history of um, of the, the Yugoslav version of, uh, of communism is really interesting. Actually, I know Bhaskar has been uh, reading a lot about that to, uh, to talk about it in um, uh, part of the book that he's writing, so maybe can uh, can come on uh, sometime uh, to uh, to talk about that, or you know, we could even have a uh, we could even have a panel on that. I, th I think that's I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of people know uh, about the uh, the Soviet experience, but you know what what existed in uh, Yugoslavia. I mean, it had it had its its own set of problems, but I mean, it's it's their their different problems, and I think that's something that's uh, that yeah, I, I think that it's worth. Um, worth putting some stuff out about at some point. But uh, meanwhile, um, I should uh, I should just say, uh, again, um, if you want that uh, interview with Dasha, uh, the one we did last week with uh, with Gene Bajalan uh, about Kurdistan uh, and every other Thursday uh, patron bonus episode, uh, then uh, head over to the Patreon patreon.com slash Ben Burgess, uh, five bucks a month to, uh, to join that. Uh, and you, you get lots of good stuff, uh, for it, you know, as, as an expression of gratitude, you know, you get those, those, those bonus episodes, you get the, uh, the discord, uh, you get uh, those discord office hours, group voice chats. Um, and there's more stuff, uh, coming down the pike in the future that, you know, that we've talked about doing, uh, but of course, the main reason to do it is just that if you like the work that we're doing here and, and you want to support it, uh, then uh, then this is one of the best ways to uh, to do that. If uh, all joking about the uh, milkshake and Pulp Fiction aside, uh, mm -hmm. if uh, if you cannot swing that, which I certainly understand, I have been there, uh, then um, you know I uh not that many years ago actually I've uh, I've been there. So uh, if uh, if you are in, in that position. Uh, you know, uh, you can still um, rate and review uh, wherever uh, wherever you get podcasts. You can still uh, like and uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Those things do help. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no question. And uh, and while you're uh, while you're here on uh, on YouTube, uh, you can uh, you know you can get those Wednesday uh, movie live streams and Sunday uh, Sunday debate live streams. So lots of good stuff coming up. I'm really excited uh, about uh, about all of it. Uh, we, really, we really hit the ground running already in uh, 2021. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think yeah between um, yeah between this uh, and uh, and the wolf uh, the wolf episode, I, I think we've been off to a really strong start. So yeah, uh, and yeah, I've, I've been excited about the 
uh, you know, everything that's been going on with the show and, and, and everything that's, that's coming up, which is a lot of it, right. You know, if you can see the, uh, the Google doc where we've got all the like upcoming stuff, uh, you know, on it as it's, uh, as it's been coming up. So, uh, I really appreciate everybody who, uh, who is, uh, you know, has been supporting it and everybody, uh, yeah, well, I, yeah, somebody says in chat, the cat is going to have words with Ben when this is done. I think he's already having words with me, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I've been uh, yeah, uh, I've been uh, I've been really excited about uh, the way that the uh, that the show has been growing. I've been really excited about uh, the uh, the guests that we have coming up, the discussions that we're going to have coming up, uh, and uh, and yeah, I really appreciate everybody who uh, came along and uh, and watched uh, uh, watched the episode, asked questions, uh, you know, just just participated in. I think the the audience interaction is one of the best, the very best things about doing this, uh, doing this on YouTube. So, um, I will see everybody, uh, see everybody next week left as best. <laughs>